The uh, <clears throat> printed title for this talk is U.S. International and Security Policy, The Right Turn in Historical Perspective. Uh, for some reason, a question mark was added to that which wasn't intended, but maybe it adds something. Uh, you'll notice that the phrase right turn was in quotes. The reason for that is not because the phenomenon is unreal, of course it is real, but rather because it is not, in my view, what it is often thought to be. Uh, what I want to discuss is uh, what the right turn really is and how it fits into deeper and much more enduring characteristics of a much of American policy uh, uh, and state policy and society. I'm largely <clears throat> going to restrict attention to uh, international policy here with a few words on security policy towards the end if there's time. Uh, but let me stress that this is obviously just a piece of a much larger story, which includes domestic issues as well that ought to be brought in. And in the question period, we can you know, have a free-for-all and go into anything. <clears throat> well, to begin with, what's the right turn? This is uh, associated uh, conventionally with the Reagan administration. And in that regard, I want to make two comments. First of all, I will refer to Reagan. But when I'm referring to Reagan, I want it to be understood that I do not mean the individual Ronald Reagan, uh, uh, who is, in fact, largely a creation of the public relations industry and who literally often does not know and is not expected to know what policies are or what the words on the cue cards mean. That's an interesting fact. It's, not a, it's an interesting fact about American politics, but uh, when I refer, use the term Reagan, I'm not referring to that individual. Rather, I'm referring to the elite groups uh, for whom he serves as a spokesman or, more important, as a device to ensure uh, public acquiescence or at least uh, public passivity with regard to the policies of the groups who have created him as a, uh, an image to appear before the public. Second point is that these elite groups constitute one rather extremist segment of a much broader elite consensus. And that is why there is no serious challenge to Reaganite policies within the mainstream, apart from tactical disagreement now and then. We see this on particular occasions. For example, the terrorist bombing of Libya, which is the most serious terrorist act of this year uh, in terms of its uh, scale. The terrorist bombing of Libya in April uh, uh, at that point, Reagan's sharpest critics, if you look back, people like Anthony Lewis and his congressional critics, they immediately flocked to the jingoist consensus. And more generally, we see this in the way that uh, congressional liberals joined in dismantling the welfare state measures uh, under pursuing what's called a Reaganite program. This was allegedly in response to a public mood which demonstrably does not exist. In fact, the major Reaganite programs, including dismantling of welfare state measures, military buildup, and so on, these were actually initiated under the Carter administration and simply continued, in some cases, escalated under Reagan. Uh, the same is true of the U.S. war in El Salvador and much else. So the point is that the right turn is actually much broader uh, than is commonly assumed, and it's furthermore an elite phenomenon. That's important. It's important to bear in mind that the public has been strongly opposed to the major policies of the Reagan administration, 
this is a fact that is totally irrelevant as long as the public is passive and acquiescent, but it is a demonstrable fact and well known to public opinion analysts. Uh, nevertheless, the right turn is uh, uh, somehow associated with or crystallized in the Reaganite programs, so let's begin to have a look at those. What are the Reaganite programs which supposedly constitute the right turn? Well, they basically fall into three related categories. First, uh, there are the programs which have involved a rather substantial transfer of resources from the poor to the rich. Second program is a large increase in intervention, subversion, international terrorism, and general gangsterism and lawlessness. Uh, third, there has been a huge increase in the state sector of the economy, uh, this in the traditional American way through the military system. The military system serves as a state guaranteed market for high technology waste production with armaments, in other words, or from another point of view, it serves as a device, as a means of state industrial management, uh, a means of forced public subsidy for the most advanced sectors of high technology industry. Uh, in fact, the ratio of state expenditures to gross national product uh, has risen more rapidly under Reagan than at any time since the Second World War, and this fanatic Keynesianism of the Reagan administration has had the predictable consequences, uh, such as the huge uh, deficit. This vast increase in the intervention of the state in the economic system under Reagan uh, has also coincided with other measures taken to strengthen the state uh, relative to the citizenry, uh, measures to protect the state from public scrutiny, uh, to block uh, public discussion, attacks on civil liberties, and so on. These are the three, as I say, the three major components of the Reagan program. Transfer of resources from the poor to the rich, interventionism, lawlessness, gangsterism, and so on, and the huge increase in the power of the state, strengthening the power of the state and its intervention in the economy, its role in state industrial management and in organizing a public subsidy for high technology industry. Well, uh, if you think about these measures, and they are the Reaganite measures, uh, it's clear that the so-called right turn is not a turn towards conservatism, uh, quite the contrary. Uh, there happen to be very few conservatives in American politics or in American society. Uh, there are few. Uh, Mark Hatfield might qualify in the Senate. I'm another one, incidentally, in essential respects, but there are very few of us. And old-fashioned conservatives, like Robert Taft, for example, would turn over in their graves uh, at the way the term is now being used. It is now being used to refer to fanatic Keynesianism, to lawlessness, and to uh, extreme advocacy of welfare state measures, although now a welfare state for the rich, not the poor, as state policy is reshaped even more than it usually is uh, to benefit the privileged and to serve their needs. So this is nothing like conservatism. Uh, now, in this connection, uh, let me make a general observation, which I think is worth bearing in mind. In political discourse, most terms are used with a kind of a technical meaning. Uh, which is divorced from and often the exact opposite of their ordinary meaning. Conservatism is a case in point, but there are many other examples. So take, for example, the term democracy. The way that's used in political discourse uh, in the United States is to, and in other countries too, is to refer to a system of elite decision 
with occasional ratification on the part of an irrelevant public. If segments of the usually irrelevant and apathetic public uh, begin to organize and to try to participate in some meaningful fashion in shaping affairs of state, uh, that is not democracy. That, has, that is called a crisis of democracy, as liberal elites in fact call it, and it's a crisis that has to be overcome by various means. In El Salvador, you overcome it by death squads. In, at home, you overcome it, come it by more subtle devices. Or take the term free enterprise, which is used to refer to a system of public subsidy and private profit, which is organized by massive state intervention in the economy, as under the Reagan administration. Or take the term defense against aggression, which is used naturally for aggression, as, for example, when the United States attacked South Vietnam 25 years ago in 1962. Uh, this was referred to as defense against aggression. In fact, it was called defense against internal aggression by the liberal hero Adlai Stevenson, who explained that, in fact, uh, this was, uh, what was happening there was aggression by South Vietnamese against the U.S. Air Force in South Vietnam. The U.S. Air Force at that time was bombing them uh, out of their homes and into concentration camps, and we had to defend them against internal aggression. Uh, these are not my terms, they're their terms throughout. Or take finally the term national interest, which is an interesting case. The national interest, the term national interest is used in political science and so on to refer to the special interest of privileged elites. The national interest often happens to refer to something very costly to the general population. Uh, and since the national interest refers to the special interest of privileged elites, naturally the term special interest has to have a comparable interpretation. It has to refer to the population, and it does. Uh, if you look at political discourse, you'll notice that national interest refers to the special interest of privileged groups, and special interest refers to the population at large. This became, this, this became very clear in the 1980 and 1984 elections. One of the interesting features of the group around Reagan uh, is their extraordinary command of public relations that's basically, you know, there's a strong component of the public relations industry there, and they do their job well. Uh, you remember that the campaign rhetoric accused the Democrats of being the party of the special interests. You all recall that. Now, if you look at who they referred to in the campaign rhetoric, you look through it, you'll notice that the special interests were uh, women, blacks, youth, elderly, handicapped, uh, in short, the population. They were the special interests. Only one group didn't qualify as special interests, corporations. And that's right, because they're the national interests. Now, uh, in fact, the, uh, uh, the uh, claim that the Democrats represent the special interests, that is, the population, is totally false. They also represent the national interest. But what's interesting is the way the elite groups on both sides accept this usage, accept the usage that the population are the special interests and the corporations are the national interests. Uh, well, we could go on, but term by term, that's the way it works. And these are among the... Uh, in order to understand political discourse, you have to bear this in mind and carry out a regular translation procedure of the technical vocabulary. Uh, the technical vocabulary is used in the media and the academic social sciences and elsewhere to ensure that nothing will be understood about how the society is working and what is happening in the world. And that's, of course, important to preserve democracy, namely a system in which the public doesn't participate. Well. 
uh, to summarize, <laughs> let me summarize so far. The right turn is an elite phenomenon. It's not a turn towards conservatism, but rather a turn towards a kind of reactionary jingoism, which is quite the opposite of conservatism. Furthermore, the, pop the policies are highly unpopular. This is a very heavily polled society because business wants to keep its finger on the public pulse, and we have extensive poll results which indicate that from the beginning of the Reagan revolution, the public has been strongly opposed to every major program. So on, say, social spending versus military spending, the public favors cuts in military spending over social spending by ratios like 4 to 1 or 7 to 1, depending on the program. Uh, on contra-aid, the public opposes it by 2 to 1, and so on, policy by policy. Well, uh, the, the policies are, in fact, unpopular, and it's not hard to understand why. The public in general is not going to be in favor of policies that uh, turn the state into a welfare state for the rich uh, and that organize a public subsidy for high technology industry, nor are they in favor of interventionism and aggression and so on. Now, uh, the fact that the policies are unpopular causes certain problems, naturally, and there's a classic answer to these problems, an answer which is used in democratic societies or totalitarian societies where you also have to gain popular support for policy, in fact, uh, and there's a classic answer to this kind of problem. You frighten the population. You threaten them with a great Satan, uh, with uh, an evil empire that's going to destroy them, uh, and then maybe they'll accept the policies uh, if, uh, the, uh, as an unfortunate necessity in, in the face of this threat. However, that also has problems. If you enter into confrontations with the evil empire, it could be dangerous because they can fight back. So what it's necessary to do is to enter into confrontations with the evil empire's proxies. You find groups around the world that are essentially defenseless, where you can murder them at will and they can't fight back, uh, and you make them the proxies of the evil empire, and then you can attack them. Uh, and those confrontations can be used to terrify the domestic population and to ram through unpopular policies. And that's the way it works. If you want, I'll elaborate later. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, for example, Libya, has been selected by the Reagan administration public relations people as a perfect target. Defenseless, weak, tiny, kill Libyans at will and nobody cares given the background of anti-Arab racism. Uh, and you can designate them a proxy of the evil empire. And in fact, the Reagan uh, administration has set up regular planned confrontations with the Libyans to try to evoke jingoist hysteria at home and to reinforce the jingoist uh, consensus. Uh, so that it's possible to carry, to pursue these unpopular policies. They've been helped in this by a very effective disinformation apparatus known as the media. Uh, and in fact, if you, if you like, I'll, um, this is sort of off my topic, so I won't go into it, but there are very interesting things to say about that. Uh, if you want later, I'll go into it. Anyhow, that's the way you sell the policy. Terrify the population, but not with confrontations with the evil empire, which is far too dangerous rather with its designated proxies who are safe because you can attack them at will. Uh, the current right turn began in the early 1970s. Uh, this was in large part a response to the Vietnam War, which created a number of problems, basically two categories of problems for the elite groups that run the American state and private society. It's a tightly related nexus. 
uh, one class of problems was economic. Uh, the fact of the matter was that the, the Vietnam War ended up being quite costly to the United States, uh, and it also ended up being quite profitable to our major enemies, that is, our industrial rivals in the first world, the industrial capitalist societies. So it was very profitable for Japan, for example. Just like the Korean War was, the Korean War too was extremely profitable for Japan. And in fact, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, where Japan could serve as a uh, as a uh, uh, a source for production and uh, procurement and so on for the American War, that's what created the Japanese economic miracle. It's worth remembering that under the Kennedy administration in the early 1960s, uh, Japan was it's hard to remember this, but the Kennedy administration was concerned about trying to find measures that would make the Japanese economy viable. Uh, that's not the problem today, exactly. Uh, and that change took place crucially during the Vietnam War. In fact, the U.S. trade patterns with Japan shifted in 1965. Prior to that, we always had a favorable balance of trade with Japan. After that, with marginal exceptions, it's always been negative, increasingly so. Uh, and uh, what happened was that the costs of the war to our economy uh, translated into gains for the economies of our enemies, Japan, Canada, Western Europe, and so on. That created a serious economic crisis. It meant that U.S. domination of the industrial world was beginning to erode. Uh, now, a number of steps were taken in response to this particular problem. Um, one major step was a, an attack on labor, drive down wages, uh, an attack on social programs, to transfer resources towards the wealthy, towards the investors, and so on. All of this was in the interest of restoring profits and restoring the power of American business quite generally. And again, and of course that reflects an elite consensus. There's no central dispute over those matters within the sectors that provide planners and policymakers. So that's one class of problems, which leads straight to Reaganism. Uh, the second class of problems fall roughly under the category of discipline, uh, and that has to do in part with the third world. Uh, again, partly because of the Vietnam War, but partly for other reasons, there was a lot of growing lack of discipline in the third world. With the breakup of the Portuguese Empire, there were very dangerous steps towards independence in its uh, various components. Uh, there was ferment in Central America. There was a real threat that democracy might develop there. I'll come back to that. Uh, and all of these things had to be repressed. The lack of discipline in the third world had to be stopped uh, and they had to be returned to what the Washington Post calls in Central America the Central American mode, meaning terror and torture states and so on. And this requires intervention, and intervention requires a jingoist consensus. And that brings us to the second problem of discipline, which is domestic the population was out of control, uh, dramatically so. The Vietnam War contributed to the politicization of, the, of American society. That is, it led to a crisis of democracy. Uh, in fact, Crisis of Democracy was the name of the very interesting book written by the Trilateral Commission, their one major publication. And remember that that's a grouping of liberal elites. It's the group around Carter, basically. Uh, and in this publication, which is very much worth reading carefully, they describe, it's in 1975, they describe the crisis of democracy. What happened in the 60s, in part because of the Vietnam War and so on, was that segments of the normally apathetic population became organized for political action and tried to enter the political arena. And that, of course, is intolerable, uh, so that has to be stopped. 
and you've got to figure out a way to reduce the public to their traditional apathy and passivity, uh, and it's necessary to overcome the, uh, what they call the excesses of the press, which barely existed, but they were frightening, those tiny deviations from obedience, uh, and it is necessary to control what they called the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young, meaning the universities and the schools and so on, and in general, it was necessary to overcome what is called the Vietnam Syndrome. Uh, the Vietnam Syndrome, that's a term, it's an interesting term. It, syndrome is a disease of some kind. And this refers to the disease that large parts of the population, in fact, a large majority of the population, began to gain some insight into the way the world is working, uh, expressed opposition to aggression and massacre and torture, and a degree of solidarity with their victims, and that's, of course, totally intolerable, just as the crisis of democracy is. And all of that had to be overcome uh, and to restore a jingoist consensus in support of interventionist policies. Uh, these are the factors that lie behind the right turn. And because these concerns are shared across liberal and so-called so conservative liberal and jingoist reactionary elites, there being no conservatives to speak of, uh, there is essentially no opposition to the policies. So the right turn then exists, and it had a number of contributory factors, and it has been proceeding through the 1970s and into the 80s with the cooperation of virtually all elite groups, uh, and they are concerned over the threat posed by several major enemies, the first enemy being the industrial rivals of the United States, Japan, England, uh, not so much England anymore, but Germany, Japan, uh, even now South Korea and so on, a second enemy, uh, third world upstarts who are refusing to follow orders and have dangerous ideas about independence, and thirdly, the domestic population, which is always a major enemy, unless it is sufficiently apathetic and controlled. Now, of course, all of this has to be concealed, and it is. It's framed in the conventional Cold War demonology of superpower confrontation, but the fact of the matter is that the Soviet-American conflict, though it's quite real, is only a secondary factor in these developments. I'll come back to it. It's placed in the forefront for the reasons I mentioned in order to frighten the population into obedience. And it would be very hard, for example, to convince Americans that, say, Nicaragua or peasants in El Salvador or Libya or the PLO constitute a threat to their existence. But if they are all proxies of the evil empire, which is spreading its tentacles and threatening to destroy us, then the threat becomes more credible and the population can be mobilized to accept uh, such programs as those of the later Carter and Reagan administration, uh, accept them as an unfortunate necessity to save us from destruction. That's basically the way the ideological system works. Well, if we look, I'm going to come back to this again, but now let's take a quick look back to earlier history and we'll find that this combination is not at all novel. In fact, it's repeatedly happened over and over, and it's worth looking at that to understand it. There have been other so-called right turns. In fact, we find that every major war of this century uh, has evoked a similar reaction on the part of elite groups. That is, business, the political elites that are primarily business-based, uh, the corporate media, and the privileged intelligentsia generally who serve as the ideological managers or uh, the commissars, as we might call them. Uh, in every, after every one of these major wars, there has been a similar campaign on the part of these groups, a similar right turn. 
So during World War I, during and after World War I, the Wilson administration, which was called a progressive administration, uh, under the pretext of a Bolshevik threat, launched a Red Scare that succeeded very effectively in uh, deterring the threat of democracy in the true sense while uh, reinforcing democracy in the technical Orwellian sense. Uh, it succeeded in undermining the labor movement, undermining dissident politics, and reinforcing corporate power. Uh, there were several lasting institutional effects of the uh, Red Scare, which was quite serious uh, and accepted by a broad elite consensus including the liberals who were passionately opposed to freedom of expression uh, and to organizing and said so quite openly. Uh, two permanent effects of that, institutional effects, were the rise of the public relations industry, which is almost a unique American phenomenon, reflecting the very high level of class consciousness on the part of American business elites. The rest of the world is way behind them in that respect. Uh, and a second institutional result was the national political police, uh, what's called the FBI, which is primarily concerned with suppressing democracy, with suppressing political dissent, uh, organization, activism, and often is, uh, sent, is commissioned to use violence to do this, uh, as it was by the Kennedy administration and, and many others. Those two institutions grew out of the effective Red Scare, which did succeed in destroying potentially democratic organizations like, say, labor unions and others, uh, and at least very seriously weakening them and restoring corporate power. Uh, uh, it was also, incidentally, at this time that liberal democratic theorists, people like Walter Lippmann, well-known liberal journalist, uh, it's at that time that they began to m uh, emphasize what they called, Lippmann in this case, called the manufacture of consent or the engineering of democratic consent. That is, it's at that time that the explicit theory was developed by elites, and it's worth knowing that it was explicit, uh, the theory that said that in a society, in a country where the state does not have the resources to control the population by violence, it's necessary to resort to thought control. In other words, if the people, if the voice of the people is heard, you have to make sure that that voice says the right thing. Uh, uh, and that requires manufacture of consent, it requires propaganda, requires indoctrination, it requires public relations, and so on. All of this was developed quite explicitly beginning with the 1920s, and in fact it's a major theme not only of the uh, public relations industry but also of academic social science and uh, what's called democratic theory in the Orwellian sense ever since then. I mean, it's not that that began at that time, but all of this became institutionalized at the time of the uh, Red Scare on the basis, uh, pr uh, using the pretext of a fabricated Bolshevik threat uh, in the, uh, around the end of the First World War and shortly after, in an effort which was successful to avert the crisis of democracy then. Well, the world, Second World War led to similar developments, the most familiar aspect being the phenomenon that's mislabeled McCarthyism. In fact, it was a broad-based effort spearheaded at first by liberal Democrats with a strong support of the, by then, very well-organized public relations industry. Uh, the point was to overcome the crisis of democracy that was then brewing uh, during and after the Second World War. And again, it was quite conscious. It was conscious through the latter period of the Depression and later. In 1938, the uh, National Association of Manufacturers Board of Directors concluded, I'm now quoting, concluded that the hazard facing industrialists 
is the newly realized political power of the masses. Unless their thinking is directed, they said, we are definitely headed for adverse, uh, adversity. Uh, notice, incidentally, that business groups, when they're talking to one another, quite often use vulgar Marxist rhetoric like this. Uh, that's not uncommon. Uh, and in fact, substantial efforts were taken by the highly class-conscious business groups to overcome the threat, uh, namely the newly realized political power of the masses, which was, uh, again, a crisis of democracy. And it had considerable success, and it was recognized internally. So in 1947, the State Department public relations officer, Milton Davis, commented, and again, I'm quoting, that smart public relations has paid off as it has before and will again, and it has moved the public opinion climate sharply to the right, anti-social change, anti-economic change, anti-labor, at the same time that the rest of the world, including Europe, was moving in the opposite direction, admitting labor into the government and passing liberalized legislation. So that's again a successful propaganda effort, including the whole elite apparatus, including the commissars, business, public relations, and so on, to turn the country to the right and to avert the threat of democracy. Uh, in some of these developments in the rest of the world, just referred to, caused quite a lot of concern, and U.S. power was applied to halt them. I'll return to that in a moment. But now I'm talking about the primary enemy, namely the domestic population. Well, the point of these comments is that wars and other periods of turmoil, like depressions, they tend to involve people in social and political action. Uh, they tend to create a crisis of democracy, a threat of political organization and engagement on the part of the population. That is a threat that there might be moves towards meaningful democracy. And naturally, dominant elites have to rally to prevent this threat to privilege and power. So we get the Red Scare during and after World War I, the post-World War II repression and PR campaign, which was quite serious, and the right turn of the post-Vietnam decade, which we're now in the midst of. In all three cases, one major enemy was the domestic population, that is, the special interests, as they're called in contemporary newspeak. They have to be returned to apathy and passivity. In all three cases, the Bolshevik threat was used quite effectively for this purpose. Uh, uh, before the Bolsheviks were around, it was necessary to appeal to other threats to accomplish similar purposes. So when Wilson invaded the Dominican Republic in Haiti in 1915 and 16, there were no Bolsheviks around, so we were defending ourselves against the Huns at that time. Uh, and throughout our earlier history, we were defending ourselves against Great Britain as we slaughtered the native population and conquered the national territory, uh, a major theme of U.S. history, incidentally, from the earliest days. Now, other powers, of course, use similar devices. It wasn't invented by the United States, though it has been perfected, not surprisingly, given the greater need for effective indoctrination in a society where the state does not have the resources to coerce the citizenry by violence, exactly as liberal theorists in the public relations industry have emphasized. But other powers use similar devices. So take the Soviet Union, opposite extreme from us, totalitarian dungeon, lots of resources of violence to control the population. Nevertheless, the population has to more or less at least be passive, if not acquiescent in policy. That's always a necessity, and they are. So the, they don't have public opinion polls, but as far as can be judged, 
the policy of the, so the population of the Soviet Union does support what they call the defense of Hungary or the defense of Czechoslovakia or the defense of Afghanistan. They see themselves as acting in defense of those countries, ultimately in self-defense against the evil empire, which is intent on their destruction, namely the United States. Uh, the Cold War, in fact, is, a high, is highly functional for dominant elites in both of the superpowers, which have a kind of a system of tacit cooperation. Each has to fight against its primary enemy, namely special interests in its own country, its own population. Uh, and one of the ways they do it is by terrifying them with the crimes, which are quite real in both cases, of the evil empire. Uh, this functional utility of the Cold War is incidentally one reason why it persists, despite the long-term threat that it poses to survival. Uh, well, I've talked so far about how the groups that control the economy and the state and the ideological institutions react to threats to their power and privilege, the threats raised by one primary enemy, namely the domestic population, the special interests. Uh, but there are, of course, other enemies that have to be confronted. Uh, the industrial powers of the first world, Europe, Japan, and so on, and their populations, and as I mentioned, they were getting out of control after the Second World War, uh, the peoples of the Third World, and the Soviet Union. So how were these challenges addressed by American planners? Well, uh, let's begin, let, let me concentrate now on the post-World War II situation. In fact, let's begin with World War II. World War II, in fact, instituted a, a new world order. Not totally new, but new in significant respects. Uh, it was new primarily in that there was one power, one state with overwhelming power, namely the United States. Uh, in, at the end of World War II, the United States had a degree of wealth and power relative to others that has no historical parallel to it, as far as I know. The United States literally had about half, half of the world's wealth. Uh, during World War II, most of our industrial rivals were either severely weakened or totally destroyed, while the World War was very beneficial to the United States. Our territory, of course, was never under attack, the national territory, uh, and in fact, American industrial production quadrupled or tripled or quadrupled, depending on which measure you pick, during the Second World War. And in fact, long before the Second World War, we already had been the greatest industrial power in the world. Furthermore, there were no enemies. The United States had no enemies in the hemisphere. It controlled both oceans. It controlled most of the opposite sides of both oceans. Uh, in fact, if you think there has never been a period in history when one power had such overwhelming control of the world's wealth or such overwhelming security, that naturally created a new situation. Uh, well, American planners understood it. They understood all of that, uh, and they were determined to keep things that way. Uh, there was a spectrum of opinion. This, incidentally, is a very open society by comparative standards. We have a rich documentary record. If you, you have to work to find it because it's excluded from the institutions uh, responsible for the indoctrination of the young, uh, as the liberal ideologists call them, but it's there. You know, it's there if you go, if you forget the history books and the political science texts and so on, and you go back to the documentary record, you find a lot of riches. Uh, uh, so, for we, we, and the picture looks approximately like this. There was an elite consensus that the dominance of the United States had to be maintained, but there was a spectrum of opinion as to how to do it, roughly hawks and doves. 
at the hardline extreme, you have documents such as the uh, uh, National Security Council Memorandum 68. These are all top secret documents, but they've been released, you know, 30 years later and so on, so they're now available. Uh, NSC 68 uh, in uh, 1950, written by Paul Nitze, who's still around, he's one of Reagan's negotiators now, uh, that's the hardline extreme. Uh, this, it's important to bear in mind that this document was prior to the Korean War. It was in April 1950 before, it was not a response to the Korean War, it preceded it. Uh, NSC 68 called for a huge increase in the military system. Uh, the actual figures behind it were maybe tripling or more of the military system. It called for a rollback strategy against the Soviet Union, a policy designed to break the Soviet Union up uh, and to take it over. Uh, the, uh, um, the wording was something, it was the following, uh, I'm quoting it now. Uh, the policy was designed to foster the seeds of destruction within the Soviet system by a variety of means, which would enable the United States, quote, to negotiate a settlement with the Soviet Union or a successor state or states. Now, this policy of breaking up the Soviet Union uh, required, they said, sacrifice and discipline in the United States. It required cut back huge military expenditures, cut back of social measures. It required that we take measures to overcome what they called the excess of tolerance or domestic dissent. In other words, you got to control the citizens and, you know, impose totalitarian discipline uh, uh, and, in general, prevent the threat of democratic politics. That's the hardline extreme. Uh, let's, uh, there, it's only what kind of means were, being, were they talking about? Well, the means were, in fact, being used. They weren't just being talked about. They were being used, in fact, prior to this. Uh, they were using, for example, such means as U.S. support for armies fighting inside the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe, armies that had been established and encouraged by Hitler, uh, which were now being supported with CIA agents and uh, uh, airdrops and so on. This was considered and also it involved things like uh, turning over West German intelligence to a network run by Reinhard Galen, who, had, who was in charge of Nazi military intelligence in the Eastern Front. So reconstitute the Nazi network for the Eastern Front uh, and so on. These were the measures that were already in place uh, prior to NSC 68. All of this is known in the United States, but considered insignificant. We might react a little bit differently, let's say, if we found that the Soviet Union in 1950 was supporting armies in the Rockies uh, established by Hitler uh, uh, and uh, dropping agents and uh, supplies to them. But we consider it our right, since we own the world, we consider it our right to do anything anywhere, whereas others plainly don't have equivalent rights. So that's the hardline extreme, and notice that the policies were being implemented. Uh, well, let's turn to the doves. Let's turn to the other extreme. The leading dovish figure was undoubtedly George Kennan. Uh, he headed the State Department planning staff until 1950, at which time he was replaced by Paul Nitze. That was a switch from the dovish to the haw hawkish extreme of the spectrum. Kennan was one of the major figures in shaping the post-war world. He's also one of the most humane and intelligent and also lucid of state planners. And therefore, what he wrote is extremely interesting to illustrate the dovish extreme. I've sampled the hawkish extreme. Uh, for, uh, for example, one document which you ought to look at if you want to understand your country is uh, P-1 
PPS 23, Policy Planning Study 23, uh, published by the State Department Planning Staff, written by George Kennan, top secret, of course, February 1948. Uh, here's what it says. I'll now quote it. We have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of its population. In this situation, we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreaming, and our attention will have to be concentrated everywhere on our immediate national objectives. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford today the luxury of altruism and world benefaction. We should cease to talk about vague and unreal objectives, such as human rights, the raising of the living standards, and democratization. The day is not far off when we're going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are then hampered by idealistic slogans, the better. Now, that, of course, is a top-secret document. To pacify the public, it's necessary to trumpet the idealistic slogans, as is done constantly. But here, planners are talking to one another. Now, these prescriptions, in fact, referred to the Far East, but the United States is a global power, and the same principles apply elsewhere, as Kennan and others explained. So, for example, in a briefing for Latin American ambassadors in 1950, uh, Kennan observed that a major concern of U.S. foreign policy must be, I'm quoting, the protection of our raw materials. Notice, our raw materials. Again, this is secret, so you can be open about it. To protect our resources, we have to combat a dangerous heresy which had been detected by U.S. intelligence shortly before and which they said was spreading through Latin America, namely, quote, the wide acceptance of the idea that the government has direct responsibility for the welfare of the people. That's what's called communism. Uh, whatever the political commitments of the advocates, they can be church-based self-help groups or whatever, but they're communists if they fall under this heresy. Uh, again, another term of newspeak. I should say, incidentally, that on documents that are meant just for internal use, all of this is made pretty clear. So, for example, there's a high-level study in 1955, uh, edit, run out of Harvard and the Woodrow Wilson Foundation and National Planning Association and so on, uh, edited by William Yandel Elliott, one of the big honchos in the field at the time. And it's, uh, they, uh, this study called The Political Economy of American Foreign Policy goes into these topics, and they actually define communism in its operative usage. They say that the threat of the communist powers, the essential threat of the communist powers, is that they refuse the, uh, to allow their economies to complement the industrial economies of the West. Translating it into plain English, they do not understand that their function is to serve us. And in fact, that's a good operating, uh, operational definition of communist as it's actually used. Doesn't matter where they come from. If they do that, meaning falling under the heresy that intelligence noted, they're communists. Well, Kennan went on to explain the means that we have to use against our enemies uh, who fall prey to this heresy that threatens our resources which happen to be in their countries. Quote, the final answer might be an unpleasant one, but we should not hesitate before police repression by the local government. 
This is not shameful since the communists are essentially traitors. It's better to have a strong regime in power than a liberal government if it is indulgent and relaxed and penetrated by communists. Again, the term communist being used in the technical sense. Well, all of this is, this is remember, I'm sampling the dovish side of the spectrum here. Uh, all of this is totally excluded from and virtually excluded from the scholarly literature, which in, and, and there's a rich scholarly literature on this, including on Kennan, and it typically claims, in fact, universally claims, that Kennan had no general geopolitical conceptions, just a kind of a vague kind of moral uh, concern. The people who say that, like John Lewis Gaddis, know perfectly well that these documents exist. In fact, in this case, I happen to be quoting from a collection of documents edited by Gaddis, who wrote the standard scholarly work on Kennan, uh, so he knows it exists, but obviously you can't tell people that. Uh, well, these views illustrate the spectrum of opinion among planners, and the documentary record pretty well falls within that spectrum, as you can discover by checking it. Occasionally, you can find some qualifications. So, for example, there's an influential study of April 1947, secret again, which observed that, about aid, it observed that foreign aid should be restricted to countries of, I'm quoting now, countries of primary strategic importance to the United States, excepting in those rare instances which present an opportunity for the United States to gain worldwide approbation by an act strikingly humanitarian. Now, this stance, again, is not unique to the United States, and it did not arise in the post-war period. So let's return to Woodrow Wilson, who, as you know, was the great apostle of self-determination and who celebrated this doctrine by invading Mexico and invading Haiti and the Dominican Republic, where his warriors murdered and destroyed, reestablished virtual slavery, demolished the political system while establishing the basis for murderous and corrupt dictatorships, and placed the area firmly into the hands of U.S. investors. Again, all of this pretty much suppressed in the, even the scholarly literature, but certainly the general literature. Haiti was in the news recently, and much talk, although I, if you look back, there was much talk about traditional U.S. benevolence towards Haiti, nothing about the truth, which is, as I have just briefly described it. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, his Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, once wrote a memorandum uh, uh, explaining the meaning of the Monroe Doctrine. Wilson decided that it would be, in his words, impolitic to issue the memorandum, but he found its argument unanswerable. That was his word, very impressed by it. Here's what it said. In its advocacy of the Monroe Doctrine, the United States considers its own interests. The integrity of other American nations is an incident, not an end. While this may seem based on selfishness alone, the author of the doctrine had no higher or more generous motive in its declaration. Uh, the task at hand at that time, the document went on, was European interference in the American continent through financial and other means, which had to be opposed, and Wilson's practice, in fact, opposed it, for example, by including Britain, which was the evil empire of the day, excluding them from Central American oil concessions. The major change after World War II is that the United States was able to apply these principles on a global scale, given its power, and of course the evil empire from which it had to defend itself was no longer the Huns or the British. Well, Kennan's nutshell presentation of U.S. foreign policy did not emerge from a vacuum. 
it reflected a much broader geopolitical analysis that had been developed by elite groups and planning studies through the war. There were study groups of the State Department, including virtually all their top planners, and the Council on Foreign Relations, which provides the main business input into foreign policy planning uh, through the war, 1939 to 1945, uh, and they formulated uh, uh, kind of a theory of what the post-war world should look like. They formulated the concept of what they called the Grand Area, uh, a region which they said should be subordinated to the needs of the American economy. It should include the Western Hemisphere, the Far East, the former British Empire, which was being dismantled and subordinated to the United States. Uh, it was to be extended to a total global system, if possible, surely including Western Europe and the incomparable energy resources of the Middle East, which were then passing into American hands as we pushed out our rivals, France and England. Now, these guiding geopolitical conceptions explain a good deal of what has been happening in the world. If they're not understood, uh, what takes place will appear to be a series of random errors, uh, inconsistencies, confusions, traceable to the failings of a political leadership that is in fact succeeding quite brilliantly in its assigned chores. The third world was to be incorporated within the grand area, so was Europe. Europe posed problems, but Soviet aggression was considered a very remote eventuality. Uh, the CIA concluded in 1947 that the problem of Europe was not Soviet aggression, which no intelligence expected, but rather the possibility of economic collapse in Western Europe and the consequent accession to power of communist elements. That's one reason for the Marshall Plan, which was also motivated by the needs of U.S. industry for uh, export markets and overseas investment. Uh, that came out of Kennan's office, incidentally. Kennan's advice was also followed with regard to Japan. Uh, that was the so-called reverse course, which took place in 1947. It terminated the early steps towards democratization in Japan, which were taken by General MacArthur's military administration. The reverse course suppressed the unions and other democratic forces and placed the country firmly under the, in the hands of corporate elements that had backed Japanese fascism, uh, a system of state and private power that still endures. Uh, there's no time to go into it, but the background for planning for the Vietnam War takes place in that context. It takes place in the context of ensuring a, that the grand area will include Southeast Asia, uh, accommodating itself to Japan. Kennan's uh, planning staff, again, we're talking about the doves, explained that Southeast Asia must fulfill its major function as a source of raw materials and a market for Japan and Western Europe. Uh, they got to understand that that's their function. Vietnamese nationalists didn't understand it. They had to therefore be smashed. Uh, the threat was not that they were going to conquer anyone, but that there might be a dangerous demonstration effect of national independence, which might spread throughout the region. Same threat that arises in Nicaragua and elsewhere repeatedly. Incidentally, I should mention well, this is a very interesting story, and if you want to go into it later, but let me just note that the United States, contrary to what everyone says, left and right, contrary to what virtually everyone says, the United States achieved its major objectives in Indochina. That was a partial victory for the United States. No successes in Indochina will infect the region. 
the kind of economic and social development that American planners were very much afraid of in the late 1950s and early 60s, particularly in South Vietnam. And remember, South Vietnam was the main target of the American attack throughout. And the United States won its war against South Vietnam. It's demolished. Uh, no successes there will infect the region. In fact, these countries will be lucky to survive. And post-75, post-1975 U.S. policy has, in fact, been designed to maximize repression and suffering in the countries that were devastated by U.S. violence. Meanwhile, the United States, uh, the degree of the cruelty of this is quite astonishing if you look at the details. For example, when, Ox when the Mennonites tried to send pencils to Cambodia, the State Department stopped them. When Oxfam tried to send uh, sol 10 solar pumps, government stopped them. When religious groups tried to send shovels to Laos to try to dig up some of the unexploded ordnance left by the American bombing, the government tried to stop them. When India tried to send 100 buffalo to Vietnam to replace the huge buffalo herds that were destroyed by the American attack, and remember, this is a primitive country. Buffaloes means fertilizer, tractors, and so on. The United States threatened to cancel food for peace aid. That's one that Orwell would have appreciated. Uh, if uh, India sent 100 buffalo to Vietnam, and so on. Meanwhile, while the United States was extirpating the cancer at its source, the threat of successful in the development in South Vietnam and elsewhere at its source, uh, it buttressed what was called the second line of defense. For example, by supporting the Suharto takeover in Indonesia with some half million killed in a few months in 1965, uh, backing the overthrow of Philippine democracy in 1972, supporting martial law in South Korea, again in 1972, again under Carter in 1980, and so on. Well, in accordance with the reigning geopolitical conceptions, right at the end of World War II, the United States turned at once to dealing with the problem faced, with a major problem faced by the population of the world, which had been politicized by the war namely the, the, the problem faced by the anti-fascist resistance. The anti-fascist resistance in the liberated regions had to be suppressed, and the United States turned to that task globally, often suppressing it in favor of Nazi and fascist collaborators. This, in fact, is a major theme of early post-war history, which is barely discussed. It ought to be chapter one in an honest history of the post-war period, but you really have to look into the technical monographs to find it. Uh, what was the problem? Well, the primary concern is one that had been formulated by one of Winston Churchill's closest advisors, Jan Christian Smuts, a South African prime minister. He pointed out to Churchill in 1943 that with politics let loose among those peoples, we may have a wave of disorder and wholesale communism set going all over those parts of Europe. Uh, communism, again, in the technical sense. Uh, neither so-called communism nor socialism nor national capitalism was tolerable and they had to be destroyed. The pattern was set in the first area liberated, North Africa, uh, where President Roosevelt installed in power Admiral Jean Darlan, who was a leading Nazi collaborator and the author of the Vichy anti-Semitic laws. Uh, as U.S. forces advanced through Italy, they restored the essential structure of the fascist regime and dispersed the resistance which had fought courageously against six Nazi divisions. In Greece, British troops entered after the Nazis had withdrawn. Uh, they imposed a corrupt regime which evoked renewed resistance 
which Britain was unable to control in its post-war decline. The United States entered under the guise of the Truman Doctrine, launching the first major post-war, uh, post-World War II war of insurgency, a very murderous war with maybe 160,000 killed, complete with torture, political exile for tens of thousands of people, re-education camps, as we called them, for tens of thousands of others, destruction of unions and any political independent politics, and the full range of means that were later used in similar exercises throughout the world, placing the country firmly in the hands of U.S. investors and local business elites, while in fact much of the population had to emigrate in order to survive. Uh, the beneficiaries again included Nazi collaborators, while the primary victims were the workers and the peasants of the communist-led anti-Nazi resistance. This incidentally was the model for what Adlai Stevenson called the U.S. defense against South Vietnam. He explained that to the United Nations in 1964, that our defense against internal aggression in Vietnam was uh, modeled on our successful defense of Greece against its own population in 1947. And Reagan's advisors have used exactly the same model in talking about Central America. Well, the same pattern was followed elsewhere. It was a global pattern. In Korea, U.S. forces entered in 1945. They dispersed the, lo the local popular government, uh, they, uh, consisting of the anti-fascist anti resistance primarily, and they inaugurated a brutal repression using Japanese fascist police and Korean collaborators with the fascists. About 100,000 people were killed in South Korea prior to what we call the Korean War. That included 30 to 40,000 killed in the suppression of a peasant insurgency in one small region, Jeju Island. A fascist coup in Colombia, which was inspired by Franco's Spain, aroused no concern in the United States, no more than a military coup in Venezuela or the restoration of an admirer of fascism in Panama. But the first democratic government in the history of Guatemala which modeled itself on Roosevelt's New Deal, elicited bitter U.S. antagonism and a CIA coup that turned Guatemala into a literal hell on earth, kept that way since, with regular U.S. intervention and support, particularly under Kennedy and Johnson, and including the Carter years, when, contrary to what is commonly alleged, U.S. military aid never ceased and was barely below the norm. Under Reagan's support for near genocide, in Guatemala became positively euphoric, uh, and the most extreme of these series of Guatemalan Himmlers that we backed there, Rios Montt, was lauded by Reagan as a man totally dedicated to democracy who was getting a bum rap, uh, also lauded by Elliot Abrams, Gene Kirkpatrick, and other enthusiastic supporters of Pol Pot-style atrocities, which is in fact what was going on there at the time. Uh, with maybe 75,000 people slaughtered and tor others tortured and uh, raped, etc. during that period, a couple of years. Uh, one aspect of this post-war project of suppressing the anti-fascist resistance, often in favor of fascist collaborators, uh, one aspect of it was the recruitment of war criminals, people like Klaus Barbie. Uh, he had been responsible, the butcher of Lyon, as he's called, he was responsible for many crimes in France, so he was naturally placed in charge of spying on the French for U.S. intelligence. The reasons for this were cogently explained by Barbie's superior, Colonel Eugene Kolb of Intel U.S. Intelligence. He noted that Barbie's skills were badly needed, he said, I'm quoting, to our knowledge, his activities had been directed against the underground French Communist Party and the resistance, just as we in the post-war era 
were concerned with the German Communist Party and activities inimical to American policies in Germany. That's right, the comment is quite apt. The United States was picking up where the Nazis had left off, and it was therefore entirely natural that they should employ specialists in anti-resistance activities. Uh, later on, when it became difficult or impossible to protect these useful folk in Europe, many of them were spirited off to the United States or to Latin America with the help of the Vatican and fascist priests. There they have engaged in terrorism, coups, the drug and armaments trade, uh, training the apparatus of the U.S.-backed national security states modeled on the Nazis in Latin America, training them in methods of torture devised by the Gestapo and so on. Some of their students have found their way to Central America, establishing a direct link between the death camps and the death squads via the USSS post-war alliance. Now, I can't run through the whole record case by case, but let me mention a few general points. We might ask how well George Kennan's precepts were followed. Recall George Kennan the dovish advice, again in top secret documents, that in order to maintain the disparity, we put aside all concern for vague and unrealistic ideas such as human rights, the raising of the living standards, and democratization. How well have we lived up to that? Uh, well, it's an empirical question, and it has indeed been studied. So if you take human rights, uh, there are studies relating human rights, the human rights climate to American aid, and there's a correlation, impressive correlation. Let um, me quote from Lars Schultz, who's the leading U.S. academic specialist on human rights in Latin America. Uh, he discovered in one study that U.S. aid has tended to flow disproportionately to Latin American governments which torture their citizens to the hemisphere's relatively egregious violators of fundamental human rights. Furthermore, he shows the correlation is strong, includes military aid, extends through the Carter years, and is unexplained by any relation between aid and need. Uh, these facts, you might think, would be of some concern to people who care about their country. They're supported by other studies. I'll come back to what they mean later on if you like. Let's turn to the raising of the living standards. Now, quite regularly, in areas of predominant U.S. influence, such as Latin America, there has been statistical growth in the course of what are called economic miracles, while much of the population starves as croplands are diverted to export production for the benefit of U.S. agribusiness and local elites. That's true throughout Central America. Increased agricultural production, lower consumption on the part of the population. The United States is the world's largest food importer, primarily from the third world, including the poorest and most hungry countries of the third world. The United States is also the leading food exporter, primarily to advanced industrial societies or for such uh, projects as producing beef for export to U.S. markets, including uh, replacing local subsistence agriculture. Kennedy's Alliance for Progress gave a significant impetus to these destructive, in fact, if we were honest, murderous developments. And there's a corollary to the Alliance for Progress style of development. Uh, it's necessary to institute terror and torture states with an efficient apparatus of repression to suppress the popular opposition that develops uh, when you pursue such development policies. This too has been done primarily by the Kennedy administration. Uh, the Kennedy administration made a fateful decision it changed the mission of the Latin American military from hemispheric defense to internal security, which means war against their own populations, and it provided the institutional structures, the means, and the training 
to carry out this mission. The structure of the death squads in El Salvador, for example, was established at that time. Countries that have attempted to reverse the pattern, such as Guatemala under the democratic capitalist regime of Arevalo and Arbenz, or the Dominican Republic under the also democratic capitalist regime of Bosch or Nicaragua today, naturally they are the target of U.S. hostility and violence. As for democratization, the historical record reveals exactly what a rational observer would expect. If you look at the case of, say, Guatemala in 1954, where a democratic capitalist government was overthrown by a CIA coup, or 1963, when Kennedy backed a military coup to prevent the threat of renewed democracy, or Chile, or the Dominican Republic in 1963 or 1965, and many others, uh, you will discover that U.S. elites have consistently opposed formal parliamentary democracy if its results cannot be controlled. And they have evinced outright hatred for democracy at home as well, incidentally, if by democracy we mean a system that allows the mass of the population to participate in some meaningful way uh, in the formation of state policy. These facts, incidentally, have not gone unnoticed by serious scholars. So in a study for the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, uh, Gordon Co Connell Smith, this is the main scholarly study of the inter-American system, he points out that while paying lip service to the encouragement of representative democracy in Latin America, the United States has a strong interest in just the reverse, apart from procedural democracy, especially the holding of elections, which only too often have proven farcical. The reason is, he says, that the United States has been concerned with fostering the most favorable conditions for her private overseas investment, and the problem is that democracies are likely to fall prey to the heresy detected by U.S. intelligence, which I mentioned earlier, that is, the belief that governments should be responsible for their own population instead of the needs of Big Brother, and that makes it more difficult to maintain the disparity. Well, the recent history of the United States in Central America illustrates all of these themes. Time being brief, I won't go into discussing the official reasons that are offered for the U.S. terrorist war against Nicaragua. Let me just mention some obvious truths. One obvious truth is that the United States is desperately trying to drive the Sandinistas into the hands of the Soviet Union. Uh, that's a classic pattern. We do it every time there's a threat of independence somewhere and we can't control it. Drive them into the hands of the Russians because that gives us an, ex uh, an excuse to destroy them since they're now proxies of the great Satan. And that's being done very consciously. Uh, so we block all support from other countries like, say, France, uh, and we send the, what the government itself calls a terrorist proxy army in internal documents to attack them, and then surprisingly they rely on the Russians, so now they're an outpost of the evil empire, so now we have a right to destroy them. It's a classic pattern. Many people pretend not to understand it, but it happens all the time, and it's completely rational. Why are we doing it? Well, the real reason, as distinct from the obviously fraudulent reasons, are given, for example, by the Inter-American Development Bank or the World Bank, uh, which pointed out in the early 1980s, 1982 and 83, after three or four years of the Sandinista rule, that there had been remarkable socioeconomic progress, which was laying the basis for extensive development. There had been a very they noted a very significant rise in production of food for, for local needs, subsistence agriculture, in enormous increase in health standards, in literacy, uh, in engagement of the population, in development process, and I'm not quoting, 
I'm now quoting, this is the World Bank, and which identified its projects in uh, Nicaragua as some, among its most successful projects without a smidgen of corruption, they said, and so on. Uh, the real reasons for the attack against Nicaragua are explained by the charitable development organization Oxfam, the major charitable development organization which, is, which works in the many parts of the third world. Oxfam America points out that among the four countries of Central America where Oxfam America works, namely El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, only in Nicaragua has a substantial effort been made to address inequities in land ownership and to extend health, educational, and agricultural services to poor peasant families. But the Contra War has slowed the pace of social reform and compounded the burden in the countryside, leading to hunger and a return to earlier conditions, so that now Americans who are enthusiastic supporters of starvation and torture can point to those failures as a justification for further atrocities, as they regularly do. Uh, this was all a major success for the United States. Uh, the parent organization of Oxfam in London goes still further. They say, from Oxfam's experience of working in 76 developing countries, Nicaragua was to prove exceptional in the strength of the government's commitment to improving the condition of the people and encouraging their active participation in the development process, citing also reports of the Inter-American Development Bank and the World Bank and so on and so forth and giving many examples. This, incidentally, is in a pamphlet called Threat of a Good Example, which puts its finger exactly on the, on the issue. Uh, American government officials sometimes concede the point. So uh, Julia Preston, one of the best Central America correspondents, uh, quotes American U.S. officials as saying that while they do not believe the Contras can drive out the Sandinistas soon, uh, key American officials say, administration officials say, they are content to see the Contras debilitate the Sandinistas by forcing them to divert scarce resources towards the war and away from social programs. That's very crucial, because it's the social programs that are the threat, the threat of a good example, which might infect others, spread dissidents, cause erosion of the American system of exploitation and robbery. That's, I should say, incidentally, that these, such these horrifying statements, you know, that the purpose of the statements by administration officials, that the purpose of the war is to force them to divert resources away from social programs. Those statements are made, listened to, and nobody reacts. That's an interesting comment on the moral level of American educated elites, the ones who read these comments. These, of course, are the main reasons for the attack on El Salvador, on Nicaragua, just as they were the main reason for the attack against South Vietnam uh, in the late 1950s and the early 60s, then extending to a war against all of Indochina. Well, very much the same was true in El Salvador, very much the same. Uh, everything was fine in El Salvador as long as, there, as, there was, as it was just ordinary repression, torture, murder, and so on by the dictators of our choice. Nobody cared. So in 1972, there was an election in El Salvador. Jose Napoleon Duarte was elected. Uh, the election was stolen by the military. He was captured and tortured, finally released. He came to the United States. Nobody even wanted to talk to him. In fact, two senators were willing to talk, two congressmen, Kennedy and Harkin, were even willing to talk to him, and the press didn't care at all. That, incidentally, illustrates the utter contempt of American elites for democracy as long as things are in order, 
uh, no turmoil, profits are flowing, and so on. Same story continued in 1977. Uh, same story took place in 1977. Nobody cared. Uh, repression, torture, robbery, and so on continued. Perfectly fine. No concern here. Uh, there was, however, a concern. In fact, two concerns. One concern is that Somoza, who had been the base for American power in the region for many years, was under attack, and it looked like he couldn't be sustained, though the Carter administration did try to sustain him till the very end, and after failing, immediately reconstituted the National Guard to attack Nicaragua. Uh, but it looked like he couldn't be sustained, and there was fear that the dictator of uh, El Salvador might go the same way. However, there was a second danger, which was even more threatening. In the 1970s, there was a growth in El Salvador of what were there called popular organizations. Many of them were church-based, Bible study groups that became self-help groups, peasant associations, cooperatives, unions, and so on. That raised the threat of democracy. It's under such conditions that the, that the danger of democracy, the crisis of democracy, emerges. So uh, what should we, what, how did we react? Well, that's interesting. Uh, in February 1980, oh, there's no time to go through all the details, but the essence is the following. In February 1980, the Archbishop of El Salvador, Archbishop Romero, sent a letter to President Carter in which he pleaded with Carter not to send military aid to the military junta. The reason, he said, is that that military aid will be used to destroy the people's organizations which are fighting to defend their fundamental human rights. The army, he said, knows only how to serve the oligarchy uh, and their interests and will destroy the popular organizations, uh, which was, of course, exactly the point. Carter sent the aid, uh, knowing precisely what would happen. In March, the archbishop was assassinated. A state of siege was established, which has been renewed month monthly since. Uh, the war against the population began in force. Jose Napoleon Duarte moved in to serve as a cover which is the role that he has played ever since, the legitimizing cover to ensure that the massacre would continue and that the U.S. would support it, that Congress would support it. He had no illusions about what was going on. As he later said, the masses were with the guerrillas at that time. Uh, that was March 1980 when the archbishop was assassinated. The war against the peasantry began a few months later in May with a, the first major attack was, the, was a, huge, a big massacre at the Rio Sumpul, coordinated military operation of the Honduran and Salvadoran armies in which at least 600 people were killed in a very brutal way. There happened to be a lot of church observers there, so the information came out immediately. Uh, women were tortured and drowned. The infants were cut to pieces with machetes. Uh, pieces of bodies were found in the river for days afterwards. Uh, that was all suppressed by the American media, incidentally. Uh, they literally did not mention it for 15 months and still have yet to report it. Uh, in fact, peasants were the leading victims of the, the Carter-Duarte War in that year, in which about 10,000 were killed. Uh, in, in October, late October, uh, the successor of the assassinated archbishop, Rivera Idamas, Bishop Rivera Idamas, condemned what he called the war of extermination and genocide against the defenseless civilian population. And a few weeks later, Duarte hailed the same armed forces uh, who were conducting the war of extermination and genocide. He hailed them for what he called their valiant service alongside the people against subversion. Uh, this all throughout he'd been in the junta. Now this was as he was sworn in as president of the junta. That was after the murder of four, murder and rape of four American churchwomen by the security forces. 
That was considered a little too much in the United States. You can kill 10,000 Salvadorans, but you know, I don't want to go too far. And it was necessary to uh, legitimate the government and allow the slaughter to continue. So Duarte was, he agreed, he chose to move in as the cover and become president of the junta at that time with those words. Under Reagan, the slaughter escalated with the direct participation of the U.S. Air Force based in sanctuaries, coordinating bombing strikes, and so on. I won't go through the details, but by and large, it's been successful. The population, the popular organizations were destroyed, as the assassinated archbishop predicted. Uh, this is one of the most sordid episodes in U.S. history, and it's got a lot of competitors. About 50 or 60,000 people were slaughtered by conservative estimates. There are more than a million uh, refugees. Finally, when the country was sufficiently traumatized, an election was run. The British Parliamentary Human Rights Group, which observed it, described it as an election carried out in an atmosphere of terror and despair, macabre rumor and grisly reality. Of course, the American press exulted in this, just as reporters from Pravda do under comparable circumstances. Uh, let me stress again that none of this is ordinary killing, either in El Salvador or in Guatemala or, in, or by our terrorist army in Nicaragua. This is brutal, sadistic torture, cutting people's heads off and putting them on stakes to intimidate others, uh, hanging women by their feet with their breasts cut off and their facial skin peeled back so they bleed to death, uh, decapitating, beating infants to death against rocks. You know, This is Pol Pot-style torture. Uh, it amounts to somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 people in the last seven or eight years if we count the... Somoza's atrocities in Nicaragua, also supported by the United States, and it has led to in great acclaim in the United States. Just read the reports about El Salvador. There's enthusiastic acclaim across the board, in particular by liberal elites, as the torture is achieving its ends. That tells us something about ourselves, if we want to learn. Throughout, the threat has been that of a good example. Now, that follows from guiding geopolitical conceptions understandable and rational, and we should, understand, we should not be mistaken about it. The concern over the threat of, of a good example follows from the guiding geopolitical considerations that I mentioned before under a corollary that we might call the rotten apple theory. I'm now adopting the terminology that's used by planners from Secretary of State Dean Acheson in the late 40s to the present. Uh, the problem is that one rotten apple may infect the barrel, as they put it. The rot may spread, the rot being social and economic development that might be successful in a framework that constrains the crucial right to rob and to exploit. Uh, these countries might be a virus that would infect the region, as Kissinger said about Allende, and it's got to be stopped. Greece, Guatemala, Vietnam, Cuba, Chile under Allende, and others have evoked similar fears with responses ranging from terrorism and subversion to mass slaughter. Well, let me just say a word about security policy since it's late, uh, and I don't want to leave the topic unmentioned. Uh, main point to bear in mind about security policy is that security, there's a dirty little secret about it, security is not a concern for plan of planners. It's a very marginal concern at best. In fact, the historical and documentary record reveals this with very great clarity. There, has, there, there was not a concern about a Soviet invasion of 
Eastern, of Europe in the late 1940s or the early 50s or elsewhere. Rather, the concerns have been exactly what was expressed by the CIA documents that I quoted. The concerns have been internal aggression, and in more recent years, the threat of other rising centers of power, such as Japan. Uh, there is no doubt that each of the superpowers would much prefer that the other would disappear, but they have long understood that this is impossible, short of mutual annihilation, and they've settled into a system of global management called the Cold War, in which each superpower, as I said, appeals to the threat of the global enemy to justify violence and subversion and terror and aggression in its own domains, which for us happens to be much of the world. Any such act is self-defense against the great Satan. It's a standard technique of mass mobilization throughout history. The United States, in the United States, this is rather clear from the documentary record. Uh, there are two fundamental reasons for it, and they are expressed, even in the open record in this case, if you care to look. One fundamental reason is that it is, why, why do we have this huge increase, constant increase, in strategic armaments. Why don't we stop? Why don't we accept an end to it, given the threat? First reason is that an intimidating posture is necessary to ensure that intervention can proceed under what is called the nuclear umbrella with impunity. So here's Harold Brown, Secretary of Defense under the Carter administration, in his last presentation to Congress in 1980. He explained, with our strategic capacity capabilities in place, our other forces become meaningful instruments of military and political power. Intervention, subversion, etc., is possible, in other words, if our strategic nuclear forces are in place to intimidate everyone, make sure no one intervenes. Uh, President Reagan's arms control advisor, Eugene Rostow, said essentially the same thing at about the same time. Here's what he said. Our nuclear forces provide a nuclear guarantee for our own interests in many parts of the world, and make it possible for us to defend those interests by diplomacy or the use of theater military force. They provide a shield for us to pursue our global interests by conventional means or theater forces, that is, intervention, subversion, clients, and mercenary states, and so on. This goes all the way back, back in the early 50s, in secret National Security Council memoranda, Paul Nitze and others were saying exactly the same thing. They were saying in order to carry out our Cold War policies of intervention and subversion, we must be protected from any threat. Uh, we, must be, we must have what amounts to a nuclear umbrella. Uh, there's, that's one major reason. There's a second major reason. I've already hinted at it. The Pentagon system has long been the technique by which the state mobilizes public resources to subsidize advanced sectors of industry. Uh, now, there are very good reasons, which business elites, incidentally, have articulated very clearly since the late 1940s, as to why these methods are to be preferred over other devices of public subsidy for so-called private enterprise. Contrary to what's often said, the beneficiaries are not primarily military industry, rather general high-technology industry. So take, say, computers, the foundation of any modern society. In the 1950s, when computers were not commercially marketable, they were paid for by the public. The public paid for the cost of the, the costly period of research and development and early production uh, through the military system in the 1950s. In the 1960s, when computers became marketable, it was handed over to so-called private enterprise, which had already been subsidized so that they could make the profits. And that continues right now. 
so the so-called fifth-generation computers, next big computer development, that's funded virtually entirely by the public through the Pentagon, uh, NASA, which is basically a Pentagon-related enterprise, and the Department of Energy in connection with the production of nuclear weapons. Uh, and the same is true of a wide range of other advanced technologies. Uh, the so-called Star Wars, SDI, its expenditures correspond quite closely to those of Japan's state-coordinated uh, industrial system, which the United States is unable to duplicate directly for a variety of social and historical reasons. In fact, SDI is perfect. It spurs the arms race. It subsidizes advanced industry, high-technology industry. It maintains international confrontation. It also happens to be extremely dangerous for American security, uh, and the alleged purposes can be attained, in fact, costlessly by a comprehensive test and missile ban, but that's irrelevant because security is not a concern, certainly not a primary concern. Now, if you understand these things, the main driving factors in the arms race, you can very well understand and predict, in fact, U.S. policies on arms control and related matters. The comparative advantage of the United States is not production any longer, rather technological innovation. So the United States will welcome reduction of nuclear armaments, which is a matter of minor importance in any event, since a tiny fraction of existing arsenals could cause totally unacceptable destruction. And it will do that. We'll always be delighted to have the level of armaments decreased as long as two fundamental conditions are met. One, we've got to maintain an intimidating posture which permits the free exercise uh, of intervention, subversion, and so on. That's got to remain in place. And the Pentagon system of forced public investment for the benefit of high technology industry, that must not be t challenged. Perfect negotiating position is Star Wars combined with build-down. It's a natural stance given the policy imperatives and appropriate strategic doctrines can be designed at will given the nature of strategic theory, and that's what's done. Meanwhile, debates over the feasibility of missile defense, the choice of missiles, and so on, they will proceed along their largely irrelevant paths while the race towards destruction goes on. Now, it's sometimes argued that these, this planning is lunatic, and it's true, but it's totally irrelevant. In government, as in business, planning is short-run. It's a short-range system. You don't have long-term planning. Uh, the longer term is someone else's concern. If you think about it, you'll notice that that's quite natural in a competitive society where those who do not devote themselves to short-term advantage are unlikely to be around uh, in the long run. And these same attitudes are taken over when the same corporate managers uh, become state planners. Uh, so we should not at all be surprised at the fact that in the 1950s, the United States made no effort to terminate the development of ICBMs, which were the only weapons that could threaten it. Uh, we should not be surprised that mis missile gaps and windows of vulnerability open and shut independently of any facts. We should not be surprised that Reagan's SDI was advanced with no Pentagon contribution uh, and no strategic motive. That's known, incidentally. All of that came later. And that it is pursued regardless of the threat to survival. These factors are not the concern of planners. Rather, their concern is to maintain the disparity, to prevent rotten apples from infecting others, to ensure the crucial right to rob and to exploit, and to guarantee the domestic system 
of public subsidy and private profit called free enterprise. Now, the public may express overwhelming support for a nuclear freeze and cuts in military rather than social spending, as in fact it does, but this too is an irrelevance, as is the clear feasibility of a nuclear freeze, a comprehensive test ban, a ban on missile testing, and other measures which would surely enhance the possibilities of survival and be very beneficial to the security of the United States. As every serious study of the American political system recognizes, the public has little voice in such matters, and public opinion is of no more concern to elite groups that control the state apparatus than security or survival or human rights, the raising of the living standards and democratization. Not only the people of Latin America, but also those of the rest of the world, including the United States, are an incident, not an end, in the words that so impressed Woodrow Wilson. This is not because the leadership are bad people, and none of it is likely to change very much if better people take their place. The reasons are institutional, and the problems should be confronted without illusions with understanding of the social realities. Thank you. Will people who want to say something go to the microphones? And those of you who are leaving, would you mind doing it quietly so others can hear? Thanks. Go ahead. I'll start with, I'll just alternate, starting over here and then over here, okay? Okay. It's kind of hard for me to see you, so if I miss somebody, uh, make yourselves visible. I, I guess what I want to ask about is activism, is what can be done. And I want to preface it by saying I'm with Colorado Freeze Voter. And we're in the process of organizing to make sure Ken Kramer is not the next senator. And in fact, the number of people in this room could accomplish that by helping on election day. Hello, is this? Yeah. By helping I, on I, election day. On the, the election days day. Before, we have these little yellow slips we've been handing out to organize volunteers to help get the vote out. It's going to be get out the vote that makes the difference in this election. So I'd like everybody who can to get one and get it back to us. And the question I have for you is what can we do? Do elections matter? What do you think? Yeah, elections matter. We shouldn't, in fact, they matter to the extent that the population creates a crisis of democracy. I mean, if elections are just something in which some portion of the population goes and pushes a button every couple of years, elections don't matter. Uh, in fact, they're irrelevant. Uh, on the other hand, if the public organizes to press its position, elections do matter. If you're constantly if citizens are constantly pressing their representatives, they can make a difference. Now the difference, the way our system works, uh, it's the amount of organization and the amount of pressure that counts. Now notice what that, what that means is kind of obvious and everybody who thinks about it knows it. Uh, the, your congressional representative can be influenced much more easily than your senator and the senator can be influenced much somewhat more easily than the president, who's essentially immune. Uh, when you get to, exec to the level of the executive, policy answers almost totally to elite groups, basically those who own the society and manage it. At the level of congressional representatives, uh, popular opinion makes a difference because you can organize at a scale which will influence your representative. You can get your congressional representative to come to your home, for example and get a group of neighbors and yell at him or you know, have people sit in his office or whatever works, you know, it depends on the circumstances and it can make a difference. Often it can make an important difference. Uh, so for example, take say contra aid. 
that came close. You know, a little more political activism could have swung that vote, which would have made a tremendous difference in the amount of torture and murder and destruction in Central America. We didn't do it. We failed, uh, and it could have been done at the congressional level. When you're trying to reverse things like the arms race, it's harder, because there you're talking about real institutional structures, which are very hard to change. Uh, nevertheless, things can be done. For example, it would be possible to put, I think, it might be possible, let's say, to put enough pressure on Congress to uh, impose to, to essentially compel the government to join the comprehensive test ban and to extend it to a comprehensive ban on uh, both nuclear weapons tests and missiles. Now, you know, every arms analyst will tell you what that means. What that means is that the threat of a first strike erodes. That's a protection against a first strike. It's a costless, verifiable protection against a first strike. Frankly, I think a first strike is a total fantasy. But anyone who believes this stuff knows that to carry out a first strike, let's get into the world of illusion in which people talk about these things, uh, that to carry out a first strike requires very high confidence in your weapons. Uh, a test ban, including a missile ban, will over time erode confidence. Therefore, it's a costless, costless, literally, uh, and certainly verifiable uh, way of achieving what SDI, Star Wars, is theoretically supposed to achieve. Uh, it's po it might be possible to get the United States to join that. That would have long-term effects. It, would ha it, you know, it wouldn't change the system right off, but it would have the effect of beginning to modify the system of industrial management, uh, which uses the Pentagon as the way of forcing the public to subsidize high-tech industry. And it would, if it was combined with another parallel uh, citizen's effort to block intervention, and hence to undermine the necessity for a nuclear umbrella to permit it to continue, you could imagine very significant changes in the country. But that takes a scale of protest that's well beyond a group of people here and there sitting in at their congressman's office or you know, inviting your representative to your house. It's a matter of scale. Sure, elections can matter you know, if they are just the forward edge of a citizenry that's really insisting on participating in determining policy at every stage of the game from planning through implementation. If elections are just something that you show up for every once in a while, you're just playing a game designed by elites. You know. um, there's, as you may know, there's been a lot of activity here on campus with regard to the Central Intelligence Agency and the CIA. And there's also been a lot, well, not a lot, but relatively a lot in the mainstream media about the role of the CIA in Central America re recently because of Hassan Fos and a few other things. And I'm wondering if you can comment a little bit on the role of the CIA in Central America um, and maybe relate that to the fact that there was a recent congressional study which said that the CIA needed more money because they weren't carrying out their intelligence factor. Yeah. Well, the CIA in Central America is, by, it's, you know, what they're doing in secret, nobody, you know, one that doesn't know. And there, there is no doubt that a, nobody should be surprised that an administration committed to lawlessness, committed to lawlessness, uh, will find complex ways to evade uh, congressional restrictions just as it snubs its nose at international law in the world court. Obviously, so nobody should be surprised at the discovery that the Reagan administration had established a complex network uh, to provide AIM uh, arms for what 
it itself calls its proxy army uh, in violation of congressional restrictions. However, it's harder than if it's open. And in fact, now it's open. The worst feature of the recent congressional vote was not so much the $100 million. A lawless administration will find a way to fund its terrorist army one way or another. The worst feature of it was the involvement of the CIA, which is now open and legitimate. Now, you know, sources have already leaked that that means right off about $400 million in CIA funds, but the point is it's essentially endless. The CIA is, does what it wants. Theoretically, there's senatorial control, but it, since it's secret, it doesn't exist. Uh, that means that now the CIA can escalate the war as it chooses with limitless funds. Now, the United States is a very rich, powerful, and also very violent and murderous state. Uh, no small country can possibly resist this kind of attack. Uh, we could buy up the whole country and turn it into mercenaries, you know, given the, given the relative scale. We can carry out massive uh, terror. There's almost no limits to what the United States can do. I mean, just look at the comparison between the United States and Nicaragua. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, so once the CIA is let loose, essentially the bars are down. And that, uh, apart from what that means to Nicaragua, and maybe the rest of the region, uh, we might bear in mind that it has other possible consequences. For example, one thing that the CIA might try to do, if the CIA's terrorist army cannot succeed in its aims of, it's already succeeded, notice. The United States has already won the war, essentially. We have forced the Sandinistas to divert resources away from social reforms, exactly as the government states, and that opens the way for every hypocrite in the United States, as I said, to point to that fact as their failure and therefore to argue that we have to go attack them more, just as any commissar would say under comparable circumstances in the Soviet Union. Uh, so that's already won. Now the only question is can we pursue it to the point where we restore where we do say what the liberal editors of the Washington Post tell us ought to be done, I'm quoting now, to restore Nicaragua to the Central American mode. Can we turn it into a a state based on terror and torture like El Salvador and Guatemala? Or can we return it to a state like Honduras where half the population is starving to death? Can we do that is what they're asking. Well, maybe we can. Uh, uh, in the if the terrorist army can't succeed in that itself, the CIA, once it's involved, will do other things. For example, they may begin to do what they began to do before the congressional restrictions were imposed. Uh, to use high technology resources, where we of course dominate, uh, to impose a blockade on Nicaragua. Now you can do that with high-speed boats, the same piranha speedboats that were used to bomb the ports and attack the oil installations in some of the many activities were which were condemned by the World Court as aggression. Remember, aggression is the crime that people were hanged for after World War II. Uh, so, so you can continue with those operations. Uh, that's, uh, Nicaragua plainly can't stop them. They don't have the technology to stop them. But those operations will, if they move towards a blockade, they'll be directed particularly against Cuban and Soviet shipping. Cuba and the Soviet Union have means to respond. If they choose to carry out those means, if they choose to defend their shipping against an American attack, you can be quite certain that the American media and the American liberal congressmen will express incredible outrage over this new uh, demonstration of 
communist aggression and their desire to conquer the world, as illustrated by the fact that they're defending their ships against our attack. Uh, and that's what will happen. And in fact, we will then respond by escalating the violence. It doesn't take long for that to go to a global war, not long at all. In fact, in that respect, the United States is once again playing with fire. So quite apart from what all this means for the region, it also means a not inconsiderable threat of global war. Uh, well, that's the CIA in Central America. Of course, that's not the only place where they're active. Uh, you can tell other stories in the rest of the world, and it's not just the CIA. We have many resources of violence. For example, we use client states. You'll have noticed that in the current Hassenfuss story, it has surfaced that the United States is using Saudi Arabia as a, a way of funneling arms to the terrorist army. And notice, if you think it through, notice how intricate this planning is. Just as in the cases I mentioned, the planners are not stupid. Back in 19... It's just look at the fine print of what's coming out in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal today, and you'll notice the following. In 1981, the Reagan administration supported sending AWACS, you know, super high-tech surveillance aircraft, to Saudi Arabia over the opposition of the Israeli lobby. It's kind of unusual. They rarely are willing to run that political risk, but this time they did it, which means they had a real reason. And notice, incidentally, that when state policy is involved, the Israeli lobby is not very significant. They're only significant when they conform to state policy. Uh, so in this case, the government overrode the Israeli lobby, which is a powerful political force, and sent AWACS to Saudi Arabia. Well, it wasn't so obvious then what was the big stake. Now we know. The big stake was lining up Saudi Arabia in the United States crusade for international terrorism in Central America. We use Israel for the same purpose, incidentally. Uh, the, as I mentioned, contrary to many falsehoods, the Carter under the Carter administration, American arms to the uh, murderous regime of Guatemala continued at virtually the norm, even publicly. That's what Pentagon official figures say. What was going on by other means is another story, more certainly. Uh, but it wasn't enough because there was a major, there was a rather significant war going on and Congress was preventing the American executive from participating directly. So we used proxies. We used Argentine neo-Nazis, who in the words of Brian Jenkins, the RAND Corporation specialist on terrorism, were proxies for the United States. We used Taiwan, but primarily we used Israel, just as we're using Saudi Arabia to support terrorists attacking Nicaragua, we were using Israeli uh, specialists to support state terrorism in Guatemala, and it was effective. Uh, the numbers killed in those years are estimated roughly at about 75,000, which is not inconsiderable. And again, brutal murder, brutal torture and murder all the way through. Uh, and that's happened, that we do the same in our efforts to destabilize Southern Africa what's called constructive engagement, uh, that requires supporting South Africa, as it required supporting Rhodesia and undermining uh, um, the, the international boycott against Rhodesia. Well, we use Israel for that purpose, and probably Saudi Arabia too. Uh, the United States has many, it's a very powerful state. There hasn't been such a powerful state in history, even today, and it has many mechanisms that it can use for its purposes of uh, 
uh, in this case, international terrorism. Uh, CIA is one, but it's not the only one. It's an important one. Yes, you uh, uh, spoke briefly about uh, mass media a while ago, and I'd like for you to expand on that. Who, in your opinion, how do they control the mass media, and who does it? Well, the mass media are, first, in the first place, major corporations. You know, that's what they are. They are some of the biggest corporations in the country. And they're cl closely interlocked with other corporations. Uh, in fact, they are part of the small network of individuals and interests which effectively own the private economy uh, and, uh, and uh, staff the state executive. If you look at the people who hold the high planning positions in the state executive under any administration, they come from corporate boardrooms, investment banks, uh, half a dozen law firms that cater to corporate interests, and so on. There are a number of studies of this if you're interested. That's the same group of people, the same interests, who own the media. So naturally, they share uh, a perception of the world and general interests. That's at the top level. Now, I suppose you get down to the editorial level, or the reporter's level. Well, you know, at that point, uh, you, be, you, you find pressures to conform. Uh, a journalist, a young journalist, will quickly learn that certain things are reportable and other things aren't. You can say things in a certain way and you can't say things in other ways. And you learn it from your editors or the people right above you, and they've learned it from the people right above them. Remember, corporations are the private equivalent of what we call fascism in the political realm. The decision-making structure in a corporation is top-down. You give orders and they get executed by down below and so on and so forth, and the orders ultimately come from the owners. Furthermore, the media have a market. That market is other corporations. The, media, the market for the media is advertisers. Remember, the media do not make their money on sales to you and me. In fact, every purchase of a newspaper or journal usually costs them money. Right? That's the way the, economic, the political economy of the media work. Their market is advertisers, which imposes yet another constraint. They, they want to maintain a relationship to the state, which is their friends. You know, there's a kind of interpenetration up and back. In fact, even the individuals flow up and back. You know, Bernard Kalb, uh, 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 Leslie Gelb, etc., etc. Of course, they flow up and back because they represent the same interests. Uh, there's a constant flow between corporate boardrooms, uh, state managers, uh, media executives, and top-level media people, uh, university elites who play the game by the rules, and so on. They all belong to the same privileged elite. They all benefit the same way. They perceive the world the same way. If any of them get out of line, they're excluded. And that can happen even at a very high level. So, for example, a couple of years ago, the top editorial staff of the New York Times was essentially thrown out, John Oakes and others, because they were beginning to deviate a little bit. Time And how did it, if you look at the mechanisms, you, it's very clear. Uh, a couple of years, I think it was about the mid-'70s, there began to be reports in the business press, the Wall Street Journal, the Business Week, saying, noting, pointing out subtly, that New York Times stock was declining on the stock market. And they pointed out... Uh, here I'm quoting, they said, if the New York Times doesn't realize that it's a business, soon it won't be in business any longer. Well, what, and in fact, they did replace a good part of the top editorial board at that time. What was the great crime that the New York Times was committing at that point? 
Well, if you look back, it turns out that they were, re they were editorially supporting some very mild fiscal reform measures that business didn't happen to like. And that was enough to set in motion the technique of control. You'll notice that the state is under exactly the same technique of control in a capitalist democracy. Suppose that the, the state, in fact, is staffed by those who have resources. But suppose it tried to deviate. Suppose it started to pursue policies that didn't conform to the interests of those who make the investment decisions, who essentially own the place. Well, what would happen, in fact does happen, is a decline in investment, the beginning of capital flight, just a little bit, enough to tell them that the country is going to go down the tube unless they go back to the main course. Now, what that means is that when true decision-making power is in private hands, the political system is marginal and the ideological institutions are limited. And incidentally, these conditions almost never arise because they're all staffed by people with the same interests and the same background and the same perception anyway. Getting back again to the reporter, they just shape up or else they're out. And what typically, incidentally, this happens in universities too. Uh, those of you who are going on in the ideological professions, uh, the social sciences and so on, you'll learn this. Uh, you'll learn that you gotta conform. Now, it's not 100%. You know, the system is willing to tolerate statistical error. Uh, but it's, it's got to be enough so that there isn't any significant deviation. And you do come under pressures to conform. All sorts of pressures. You'll find out what they are if you don't know already. Uh, and those pressures are effective. They, what they do is weed out independent people. And for the people who decide to con what there's also something very interesting which you might as well be aware of if you haven't faced it yet because it'll happen. Uh, what happens is that if you decide, well, I'll conform a little, you know, I'll do what they say, but I'll keep my independence of mind, as soon as you begin to do that, you're lost, unless you're a very rare individual. Because what happens is you begin to conform, you begin to get the privilege of conformity, you, you soon come to believe what you're saying because it's useful to believe it, and then you've internalized the system of indoctrination and distortion and deception, and then you're a willing member of the uh, privileged elites that control uh, thought and indoctrination. That happens all the time, uh, all the way to the top. You know, I mean, it's a very rare person, very rare, almost to the point of non-existence, who can tolerate what's called cognitive dissonance. You know, saying one thing and believing another. You start saying th certain things because it's necessary to say them, and pretty soon you're believing them because you just have to. Uh, there is no atrocity, in my view, that, has, that we know of that has been carried out in the world that wasn't justified by its perpetrators as highly moral. That includes, incidentally, Nazi genocide. You know, you read Himmler's diaries to go to the sort of extreme, and it's all full of how noble this is and how much strength it requires and so on and so forth. Slavery was justified by the slave owners with moral arguments. If we had records from Matilla the Hun, we'd probably find out that what he was doing was highly moral. You know, same with Stalin and every mass murderer in history. And it happens at a much lower level for individuals. Incidentally, you're all familiar with this from your personal lives, and it's worth bearing in mind. So, like, there, I doubt if there's anybody here who hasn't done pretty rotten things in their life at some time. But I also. I'm willing to bet that every one of you has figured out a way to make that exactly the right and moral and proper thing to do, okay? 
And that's what happens when you, go, when you become parts of institutions, too. So that's the way the indoctrination works on the participants. And it ends up being a very effective system, ultimately rooted in control over resources, as exactly as you'd expect. It's not very mysterious. Uh, some people talk about it as, a, as this is a conspiracy theory. That's really idiotic. It's not a conspiracy. You know, like if the board of managers of General Motors decides to maximize profit, that's not a conspiracy. In fact, if they didn't do it, they'd be thrown out. You know, that's the institutional role they have to play. And the, uh, the ideological institutions also have a role that they have to play within a nexus of institutions. And if they don't play that role, or if individuals within them don't play that role, they'll be replaced by others who do, because these are institutional facts, like the arms race. Yes. Um, first of all, let me thank you uh, and compliment you on your... Uh, your conversion to realizing that Paul Pot uh, was a mass murderer, and you, you've finally seen the light on that, have you, Mr. Chomsky? No, I've seen exactly the light that I saw at the beginning. There's been a vast amount of lying on this topic, including an article which happens to be right before me in today's Daily Camera. Which I wrote. Which you wrote. Well, let me describe to you the... Okay. Uh, then, fine, then let me... Okay. There's no time here. You know, it takes a phrase to produce a lie and 10 minutes to decode it, so I'll just take one, the one you've just mentioned. Uh, let's take the Pol Pot atrocities, okay? Uh, you say here somewhere that everybody knows that Pol Pot killed two million people or some phrase to that extent, something like that. Okay, let's look at that two million people and what I wrote about it. He killed no one according to you, right? In this Pardon? book here. In this book by you, you say he killed yes. virtually no one. after the cataclysm. Yeah. And you can look and check exactly what I'm saying. You said it was a well-orchestrated uh, campaign yes. of hysteria. And I, may I finish yes. on the two million? Okay. Uh, the figure of two million people killed was produced in uh, February 1977. Uh, this is all described in detail in the book by Jean Lacouture, a French journalist, who was reviewing a book by a French priest named François Panchot, which had just come out in French. Uh, it was fine, about a year or two later, it was translated into English. You can read it if you don't read French. It was called Cambodia Year Zero. Uh, that was the only book at that point by anyone who had any direct or sort of plausible knowledge of what was going on in Cambodia, so it was an important book. It appeared in France in January 1977. It was immediately reviewed in the New York Review of Books, translating an article, a review that just appeared in France. Did you kind of come to the point? Uh, I'll get to the point. I'll long. get to the point. The review and all I that. told you it takes 10 minutes to decode a lie, and I'm now decoding it, okay? Uh, this, uh, in this review, Jean Lacouture stated that according to Ponchot, Pol Pot had killed, in fact, boast, they didn't talk about Pol Pot because nobody knew him then. Uh, he said the Khmer Rouge have boasted, that was his word, of killing two million people. That's where the figure of two million comes from that you've heard over and over again since. Well, I was interested. I hadn't seen figures like that. So, and the book was not available in the United States. Incidentally, Lacouture's review was immediately picked up by the press, quoted all over the place. Oh, isn't this fantastic? I'm horrifying. Uh, they've killed two million people. Uh, incidentally, in July 1975, two years earlier, the New York Times had already accused them of genocide. Uh, but now we had support from Panchot, the French priest, high source, says they killed two million people. Well, I had no opinion on it one way or another. So I did the obvious thing. I wrote to some friends in France and asked them to mail me the book. 
because no copy of it existed in the United States. It was being quoted all over the place. Everybody was quoting it, but it didn't exist. So I got a copy of the French book. And here's what I discovered. Here's the source of your two million figures. Uh, I discovered that according to Ponchot, the United States was responsible for the death of 800,000 Cambodians in the bombing uh, in the war in the first half of the decade. And then he says, according to the American embassy, the Pol Pot regime is responsible for 1.2 million deaths from all causes, including killing, starvation, overwork, etc. All right, Lacouture read that. He added up the two figures, the alleged claim of the American embassy and Ponchot's claim about the American war, added them up, comes to two million, attributed it all to Pol Pot. That was the two million figure. Well, I did the next obvious thing. I wrote a personal letter to La Couture, uh, in which I said, look, I don't know what's going on in Cambodia, but you misquoted Ponchot. Uh, I gave a series of misquotes. It turns out that every reference of his to the book was May a total I for a moment? May I continue? We have some Cambodians here older. I will con just a second. You asked, me to, you asked me to talk about your particular lie. I will now talk about it, okay? If you wanted me to talk about other lies, I'll talk about them. Uh, this... If, if, you'll bear with me, if you'll bear with me on this, it's a very illuminating story about the way a system of indoctrination works and about the way commissars work. Let's continue. Uh, uh, so the and may I continue? Let's go may I continue? You, you don't want me to, you don't want to, it's plain that you don't want to hear this, and I understand why, but let me continue anyway. Uh, the, so the, uh, I, I won't take the time to go through the other lies. I just mentioned that one. Okay, I, I mentioned to La Couture that his falsification of Ponchot's book was now being widely quoted, and I thought that was improper. I, I thought he ought to report what Ponchot actually said. Uh, he then wrote an article which appeared in the United States in which he thanked me for calling to his attention a number of errors. In fact, it turned out everything that he referred to was totally false, but let's forget that. And he corrected a few of them, not all, but a few. In the case of the number of people killed, here's what he said. He said, maybe the number killed was thousands or hundreds of thousands. But he said, did it really matter? In other words, did it really matter whether the actual number was in the thousands or in the millions? No, he said, it doesn't matter. It's about the same. And everyone thought that was just wonderful and very heroic. And after that, everyone continued to quote the two million figure, even after he had said, well, maybe it's in the thousands, and of course I misquoted. Now, just imagine that somebody had were to say that about an American atrocity, you know? I mean, like in, in El Salvador, the United States is responsible for 50,000 deaths in the last five years. Suppose somebody came along and said, well, it's 50, it's, it's, it's 50 million deaths or 5 billion deaths, factor of 1,000. First, somebody wrote, the United States is responsible for 5 billion deaths, you know, or 50 million deaths in El Salvador. And then suppose somebody said, well, look, you know, you just, but you misquoted and so on. And he says, well, after all, what's a factor of 1,000, you know? I mean, we would think that that's ludicrous. Of course, a factor of 1,000 matters. It matters whether it's 1,000 thou killed as an atrocity. But millions killed, in particular, a boast of millions killed, that's a very different atrocity. Factor of a, you know, these things didn't matter. Uh, well, uh, you know, a factor of a hundred, a factor of a thousand, all of those things matter. Uh, now, uh, I wrote an article, and after, La, and La, after La Couture said he didn't think it mattered, I, not I, in fact, uh, but a colleague of mine named Edward Herman, 
an economist at the University of Pennsylvania, he and I wrote an article in The Nation in which we gave the first actual review of Poncho's book. Poncho's book is the standard source on this, and we wrote the first review of it. I discount La Couture's review because everything in it was totally false. The book had not yet appeared in English, but we wrote a review of the book in The Nation. It's June 25th, 1977. You can look it up. And in it, we praised Poncho's book as serious and worth reading with its uh, report of the grisly atrocities committed by the Khmer Rouge and their barbarity. And we said, we have no idea what the actual numbers are. How could we know? But on the basis of his book, they're probably serious. And we ran through the range of, uh, uh, we, we, know, we also said we disagreed with Lacouture about the question of a factor of a thousand. We thought it mattered whether the number killed was in the thousands or the millions. Incidentally, in the same review, we also pointed out that Poncho had very significantly exaggerated the atrocities due to the American bombing. You'll notice that nobody's minded that. We have never been criticized for pointing out that Poncho exaggerated the number of killings due to the United States. Excuse me, excuse me. No, he's not. I'll go on with the rest. Yeah, that was the first book that existed, and it's the major source. Okay, and that's all we wrote at that time. Okay, that's the basis of your first. Then in the book that you're, excuse me, the book that you're talking about, the book that you're talking about appeared in, was written in 1978, and it appeared in 1979 after the fall of the Pol Pot regime. Written in 1978, it used more evidence up through early 1978. Now, at that, in that book, we started off by saying that the Khmer Rouge are responsible for what we called gruesome atrocities. Uh, and we, uh, we went on to describe them. And we then, but our, bo our book was not about Cambodia. It was about the American propaganda system. This is one chapter in a two-volume work on the American propaganda system in which we compared the way the other guy's atrocities are treated with the way our atrocities are treated. And the point that we made with two volumes of documentation is that when it's the other guy's atrocities, we, the press vastly exaggerates them and fabricates and so on, and what's our atrocities, they suppress them and remain quiet about them and so on. One of dozens of cases discussed is Cambodia, and we pointed out this example, but we also pointed out something else. We pointed out that the only people who knew anything about Cambodia was American intelligence, okay? I mean, they actually had evidence about Cambodia. They were monitoring it closely. And in fact, by then, I had contacted State Department intelligence to find out what they were saying, and it's given in there. What they were saying, first of all, they said that this claim of Poncho's about 1.2 million was an invention. They had never produced any such thing. And then they said, and in fact, this was said in public, and we quoted in the book in mid-1977, which is about the latest evidence, they said that the number of people killed by, they said that no doubt that there are atrocities. They said it's in the tens or hundreds of thousands not from mass genocide, but from brutal overwork and harsh conditions. So American intelligence estimate was tens or hundreds of thousands, and we cited that as well. Uh, we came out with no conclusion of our own about the numbers. In fact, we ended up by saying, well, maybe the two million figure will turn out to be right, even if it was totally fabricated. But tentatively, we assumed that American intelligence was probably right. Okay? Now let's turn to the last point. Now there's a lot of evidence. See, after the fall of the Pol Pot regime, a lot of evidence came out. Okay, I've now finished with everything I wrote about the topic, which was perfectly accurate. 
no one has ever found one minor error even. There have been lies, like what you just heard, but no errors. Now let's turn to another question. Now let's turn to another question, what the actual numbers are. Well, here you can turn to subsequent scholarship. It's certainly not known in detail, but there is subsequent scholarship. In fact, there are two major sources at the moment. One of them is a book on the Pol Pot period by the only authentic Cambodia scholar who has written on the topic, Michael Vickery. Uh, he's actually American. In fact, he was actually in the Foreign Service. He's a specialist on Cambodia, speaks Khmer. His wife's family was all massacred by Pol Pot. He worked in the refugee camps and so on, and he has a book called Cambodia. Uh, 1975 to 1979, in which he gives a detailed demographic study, you know, region by region, putting together whatever evidence he could, and so on and so forth. The book was very highly praised in England by Indochina scholars, and so on and so forth. It's never been reviewed in the United States, that so was published here. Uh, his conclusion is that, except in marginal journals, in fact, a professor here reviewed it in the monthly review. I will tell you, because this is important, that's why. That's why. Let me, do you want to, do, do you, do you, do you want to know the answer to this question or don't you? You don't, okay. Well, all right, let me just ask for a show of hands. How many people want me to give you this answer? Okay. Then, uh, final remark, what is, what is his, what is his, do you want to hear what the scholarly record shows? Yes, okay. What the, what his estimate, his estimate, excuse me, his estimate is that the total number who died above what would be expected if you had had regular population growth is about 700,000. There's another study by the one government that carried out an official inquiry into this, the government of Finland, uh, uh, of course, again, never mentioned in the United States, they come out with somewhat lower estimates. The State Department Journal Problems of Communism came out with a still lower estimate. Uh, the leading, there are people, incidentally, who are apologists for Pol Pot. Uh, the government scholar Douglas Pike, who now heads the Indochina Resource Center, according to him, Pol Pot was, I'm quoting, the charismatic leader of a peasant revolution under whom the population didn't suffer anywhere near as much as they said. However, I haven't said any of these things. I've just reported the facts. Now, why does that bother people so much? Because what Herman and I did was, uh, our, was we took the position that it is not proper to lie either in suppressing the crimes of your own state or exaggerating the crimes of an official enemy. And of course, the commissars who insist on the right to lie are outraged by this. Do you want to go on to the next lie, this one having been discussed? And I'm afraid to even say two sentences because it may equal 20 minutes. Okay. Well, it may. As I said, it takes a phrase to produce a lie and some time to could decode it. Can I say it. something? Go ahead. Could I, I mean, I know I might be lynched any moment, but could I go say ahead. something? I know I might be lynched, but I'm going to try. It's your floor. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you. The microphone's been turned will you off. Go ahead? I don't have a microphone. Now that we know about the two, Hello? will you go ahead? All right. Yeah. We're back in business. Go ahead. You're the most adept sophist I've ever met. Sorry? You are the most adept sophist I have ever met. Really? Okay. If we we'll let the audience judge that. Will the Nazis please be quiet? No. 
I would like to have a word, if I might. I will wait till they have had their say. Do you have something to say? I can't talk over that kind of the abuse being hurled at me. Go ahead. Now, would you silence your goon squad? Would I what? Silence your goon squad. I'm here. Very I can't hear the word. Violent remarks are being thrown at me. I'm sorry, I can't hear what you're saying. Would you talk? I didn't vote for Reagan, I'm sorry. Would you talk so that I can hear? Yeah. I, are you not understanding what I'm saying? I, my now words? I understand. Go ahead. What was your question? That's hard to deal with. What is your uh, question? My, my question is that... Thank you for the silence. Now, you have described a world, a Nazified world, controlled by the United States. And I think someone coming from Mars and hearing all this would think that, 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 that that's the state, that the world is controlled by the United States in a kind of terroristic network. And we'd be very surprised to go out into the world and find that, in fact, the allies of the United States and Europe and Japan that were reconstructed by the United States and helped by the United States, in fact, are the freest, most prosperous states in the world due mm -hmm. to the benevolence of the United States. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, the things that you attribute to the United States... Thank you. The things that you attribute to the United States the things that you attribute to the United States, for instance, death squads in El Salvador, was an outrage, considered an outrage by the Carter administration, considered an outrage by Ambassador White, who was there. Carter cut off aid to Nicaragua, uh, uh, to Guatemala, excuse me. In fact, we had the ironic situation in 1979 and 1980 of the United States sending emergency aid to the government of the Sandinistas and which is a pro-communist, Marxist-Leninist group of people, and the United States was aiding them. At the same time, the United States was denying aid to the anti-communist government of Guatemala because of its human rights abuses. Now, that's a kind of twist that doesn't quite okay. fit into your conspiratorial theory, right. which includes the media, and everything is all kind of in a big ball, and everybody's just working towards this, this untruth. Okay. But well, you gave you three examples. Shall I comment on those? First, you said that uh, the Carter administration was opposed to death squads and Ambassador White was opposed to them. Second, you said the United States stopped military aid to Guatemala under, uh, under Carter. Uh, and third, you said the United States was sending aid to the Sandinistas. So let's take those three. Uh, Ambassador White, until the moment that he left the government, supported uh, what was happening. You will find no criticism on his part. The Carter administration claimed officially in, 19, in 1980, when the death squads really went into operation, when the bishop talked about the war of extermination and genocide against a defenseless civilian population, that was under Carter, remember, uh, that was the year that 10,000 people were killed. Uh, the Carter administration officially was saying that it didn't know who was doing it, uh, that the centrist government was under attack by the terrorists of the left and terrorists of the right, and we have to continue to support the centrist government. It later turned out, it later leaked out, that the, and the press was saying the same thing. Uh, Alan Riding, who's the top Central American, Latin American correspondent of the New York Times, later pointed out in the small print, I'm quoting virtually, that at that time the Carter administration was telling the press exactly what the human rights groups and the Salvadoran church were telling them, namely that 90% of the atrocities were due to the security forces and the death squads were simply part of the security forces. After he left the government, Ambassador White started saying the same thing. But in 1980, when he was there, he didn't. 
uh, you can find this, if you want to go back to the press, you can find it there. If you want a secondary source, you can look, say, at Ray Bonner's book. He was the Times correspondent who was withdrawn from there, and he gives plenty of evidence about it, as do I. That's El Salvador. The death squads were implemented under the Reagan administration, and in fact it's misleading to call them death squads because they were essentially the security forces that we were supporting, doing exactly what the assassinated archbishop said they would do. Military aid to Guatemala. Here you have to go back to the Pentagon records, and you will find exactly what I said. Recall the words. Under Carter, military aid to Guatemala continued at virtually the norm, and that is true. It's in the Pentagon printouts. If you want a source, uh, you can look at the most accessible source is an article by Lars Schultz, the guy I mentioned before, who's a leading mainstream specialist, State Department advisor, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's in a book, in an article called Guatemala, which appears in a, a book edited by Martin Diskin called Trouble in Our Backyard about two years ago. And in it, he just has a page of Pentagon printouts. And he points out that, contrary to what everyone says, the aid continued to flow. Now, there, if, there's if, if you want me to go through the details, I'll explain it. There are all sorts of devices to keep aid from flowing even when, you don't, uh, when aid is not authorized. You can say it's in the pipeline. You can do all sorts of things. Uh, but the fact is there. You can check it up if you like. Incidentally, under Reagan, the official aid stopped, but the unofficial aid, the illegal aid, escalated. That has recently been... Uh, Explain, being developed in great detail by another Latin American correspondent, a very good one named Alan Nairn. Uh, you can find a, an account of it in the August issue of the Progressive in response to a State Department claim and in earlier articles of his there, which are referred to. Uh, in fact, the military aid, including even tanks and so on under Reagan, went way up by essentially the kind of mechanisms that you see in the Hassenfuss case, you know, a complicated deal through Belgium and so on and so forth. That's the second point. Now, what about the aid to the Sandinistas? That's an interesting one. That, in fact, is true, but you've got to look a little closer. The Carter administration, what happened is the following, and I'm sorry if this takes a little time, but truth is not easy. Uh, the, the, when the uh, Carter supported the Somoza regime till the very end, the very end, when it was obvious that Somoza couldn't be sa uh, saved any longer, Carter, Carter proposed, tried to develop a, he, he, he proposed that uh, the National Guard be retained, but Somoza leave. It's a system that they called their Somosismo without Somoza. Exactly the same system, because it was the National Guard, the terrorist army that controlled the population. Somoza was dispensable as far as we were concerned. So Carter's last proposal, this is in fact, a, you know, up to the day in which Somoza fled, was to keep the National Guard and uh, to replace Somoza with some other thug. Uh, furthermore, Carter arranged for one of our clients, Israel, to provide aid to Somoza till the very end. Israel cannot send aid unless we agree. They're much too dependent. And 98% of Somoza's aid was coming from Israel till the last day. In fact, there were still ships on the way. Uh, so we supplied him and tried to keep him in business till the end. All right, he couldn't be maintained. The National Guard was driven out. The United States immediately began to rescue the National Guard. We reconstituted them on the border using Argentine neo-Nazis, proxies as our own specialists in terrorism say, and on and on and so on. All right, now what happens to the aid? Well, here's what it was. You take a look back and this is what you'll find. Carter proposed $117 million of aid 
to the new government. That aid, if you look at it, was directed to the private sector. Now, and furthermore, the most, the great, the, the domestic support for the aid was international banks. Why? Because international banks had lent money. This is part of the whole Latin debt business. They had lent... A, uh, now, you know, here we get to the ultimate in hypocrisy, really the ultimate. People, now we find Americans referring to this last-ditch effort to block social reform as a sign of American benevolence. That's monstrous. Next. Um, hopefully we can look forward to some more illuminating articles by Frank. Um, I didn't uh, catch that. Uh, that's okay. Um, on the way in here, we were, uh, a number of us were given uh, material about Israel and uh, Zionism. I'm wondering if you can give us some brief examples of the connection between Israel and, let's say, Guatemala, El Salvador, and yeah. uh, Nica uh, Somoza's Nicaragua. Okay. Uh, I think, given the time, I, I'm afraid I can't answer, but let me just refer you to some sources. Well, the, the general fact is that, as in many other parts of the world, Israel did serve as the agent of the Carter and Reagan administration to circumvent the fact that the Congressional Human Rights Campaign had put certain constraints on their ability to participate in genocide. So we did it through Israel, not only Israel, Taiwan, Argentina, Israel, there's a network of pariah states that we use for that purpose, Saudi Arabia and so on. But Israel is the best because they're the most dependable since they're totally dependent. That's one of the reasons we maintain the military confrontation in the Middle East and block peace, incidentally. We want to keep them dependent. Uh, they're, they're technologically advanced. It's highly militarized. They're really good at it. Uh, so it's a, it's a Sparta. You know, we want to, the United States wants to keep them that way. Uh, and they were very good at it, and in fact, they, for example, they provided the computer systems which enabled the uh, Guatemalan government to keep track of, to monitor uh, electricity and water flow in apartments in Guatemala City, so that if some apartment seemed to have too many people in it, they could send in the death squads to get rid of them, and various things like that worked pretty well. The so-called model villages, which are a system for controlling the uh, the rural population in a vicious fashion, I should say. They also organized that and so on. Uh, that's Guatemala. The same is true in a lot of other places. If you want some details on it, um, there's some stuff in my book, Turning the Tide, and a lot of references. Uh, you'll find a lot of material in a journal called Israeli Foreign Affairs, if the library has it. They may not. Uh, if you can wait a little bit, there's a new book coming out by, oh, there's, a, there's an article by um, Cheryl Rubenberg, who's a professor at Florida State University, which just came out. I th if you write me a letter, I'll tell you. I think it, I forget where it appeared. Anybody? Slips my mind. It just appeared uh, in, I think, a British journal, if I'm not mistaken. But that's about uh, Israeli aid in Guatemala. And there's a book coming out, should be out in a couple of months, by an Israeli scholar named Beit Halachmi, B-E-I-T-H-A-L-L-A-H-M-I. He's a professor at Haifa University uh, who goes through this. This is in English. Uh, he goes through this and other similar things in great detail. So there are some sources you can look at you know, for details. There's just no time to go into it.
With respect to um, disinformation and political and social rhetoric, would you comment on the uses of humor historically and their kind of relative impact to other methods of straight education and editorial in dealing with shifting political mm -hmm. awareness? Let me suggest that I not answer. It's an interesting question, but I think it's enough off track so that given the hour, if you don't mind, I won't answer. I'm interested in hearing you speak on the terms... I'm sorry, it's hard for me to hear. I'd like to hear you speak on the terms liberal and conservative. Which terms? Liberal and liberal conservative. Liberal and conservative? Since uh, you obviously use conservative to, uh, in a much more narrow sense. Well, I use it in its, um, in its dictionary sense. It's rather ambiguous yeah. in terms of what is to be conserved. Right. Okay, I mean, the, the, the terms of political discourse are at best not models of clarity. And in fact, liberal and conservative are interesting in that they've just shifted around totally. What is now called conservative in the dictionary sense was called liberal in the late 19th century. There's, an, there's a whole set of ideas called classical liberalism represented by, fig, by a lot of enlightenment figures. Some of the most important, for example, are Wilhelm von Humboldt, who inspired Jane, uh, John Stuart Mill and Mill himself, and you know, it goes back to Locke, and that tradition, classical liberalism. Nowadays, that's called conservatism. It should be, that's what should be called conservative. When the term is used properly, that's called conservatism. It's uh, opposition to state power. You know, in, fact, the, the, in fact, this is a lot of what the part of the underlying conception of the United States government was before it became a state capitalist system in the 19th century. If we go back to the 18th century, the conception was basically this. We imagine a society of essentially equal people. Now, in fact, if you look, it was equal white male property owners. But if you put that aside, a society of equal people, uh, roughly equal, and what barriers are there to liberty? Well, slavery, the church, and the state. Okay, so therefore we got a weakened state power, weakened church power, and end slavery. Ideas of that sort are basically classical liberalism developed in a, with a good deal of sophistication. And a modern conservative, like say Taft, uh, wants to cut back state power, to uh, uh, cut back say state in intervention in the economy, uh, same with say, someone like Mark Hatfield, uh, to preserve the enlightenment ideals of freedom of expression, of freedom from state violence, uh, of uh, law-abiding law states and so on and so forth. That's roughly modern conservatism. There's almost no conservatives these days. As I said, Hatfield's one, I'm another. You can find a couple of others. Uh, what, the way the term conservative is now used, it's used for people like Reagan. That is, people who want to expand the power of the state, to increase state intervention in the economy, to protect the state from uh, public surveillance, to destroy civil liberties, to tear the whatever there is of law to shreds, and so on and so forth. That has nothing to do with conservatism. Now, what about liberalism? Well, liberalism, as I said, used to mean what I just described. Just a second. What I used to, what I just, I'll call on you in a second. If you want to talk, go back to the mic. Uh, the uh, liberalism used to mean what I just described. Uh, the uh, modern term liberalism, however, means something quite different. Since I don't know exactly when, certainly since the 1930s, liberalism has meant uh, a commitment to the use of state power for 
uh, welfare purposes. You know, so New Deal type measures and so on. That's very different from classical liberalism. In fact, what it is, is it sort of sheds off towards modern social democracy. Okay? Now, you can make some sense out of these terms. They all have some sort of vague meaning. But the new meaning of the term conservative, as applied to the Reaganites, that has no meaning at all. These guys are the opposite of conservative in any sense on any issue you can think of. They are fanatic statists. They believe in state power and state violence, an expansion of state power. They believe in lawlessness. You know? It has nothing to do with conservatism. The fact that you, know, you can even use the word conservative to refer to this is astonishing. As I say, if Robert Taft heard this, he would turn over in his grave. These are all the things he fought against, any conservative fought against. Yes, could you uh, speculate briefly on the impact that the dismissal of the diplomats from the United States and USSR will have on our future? I'm sorry, I, it's very hard to hear. Could you uh, say it again? Could you speculate on the impact of the dismissal of the diplomats in the U.S. and the USSR? Well, I mean, the impact will be to somewhat harshen relations between the two powers. I don't think it'll have a major impact, frankly. Uh, the reason is I think both sides want to keep talking. The Russians want to keep talking because they're in trouble. Uh, Gorbachev would, I mean, the, the Soviet society is in fact a dungeon, no doubt. It's a totalitarian dungeon. You know. But the fact of the matter is that the government, the Gorbachev government, wants to devote resources towards domestic needs and to, do, and to turn them away from the arms race for all kinds of reasons. For one thing, because they're scared. You know, for one thing, because they're trying to be a more benevolent dictatorship and so on and so forth. That means they need negotiations. That's why Gorbachev has made this incredible series of offers. I mean, it's unbelievable when you think about it. Virtually, you know, some, most of it isn't even reported here. But just think what they've offered lately. I mean, for over a year now, they've had a unilateral test ban, okay? They uh, have uh, the last offer, they offered to withdraw all of their intermediate range missiles and to permit Britain and France not only to maintain their missile force, but even to improve it. That was never, I don't think that was even, I don't even think that was mentioned here. I mean, we somehow pretend that the British and French missiles don't hurt when they hit. They do. They're just like anybody else's missiles. doesn't matter whose name is on them. But they were willing to withdraw their missiles and let the British and French missiles remain. Uh, they have proposed a breaking elimination of the pact system. It's astonishing. You know? they've they've, they've I don't know if they mean it, since the United States was terrified and immediately backed down. We never pursued it. But Gorbachev proposed dismantling NATO and the Warsaw Pact. Well, you know, if Americans cared at even minimally about Poland, say, or Hungary, we'd jump at that opportunity. I mean, a break, we don't need NATO to control Germany, you know, France, but they do need the Warsaw Pact to control Poland. So if we even had a marginal interest, we, I mean the U.S. government and U.S. elites, if they had even a marginal interest in the welfare of the Poles, which of course they don't, they would at once leap at this opportunity and see if you could pursue it. I mean, no Soviet government in the world, even if it's run by liberal Democrats, is ever going to, to withdraw its control over Eastern Europe if Germany is part of a hostile military alliance. That's transparent. I mean, Germany alone almost destroyed Russia not long ago. Germany as part of a hostile military alliance is a real threat. I mean, they happen to have real threats. We don't, but they do. Uh, they're surrounded by, by powerful enemies. 
uh, in Western Europe, in Turkey, and elsewhere. We're not. So they proposed the dismantling of the pacts. Well, you know, we fled from that one. It was not even mentioned here. They proposed withdrawing all fleets from the Mediterranean, Russian and American fleets from the Mediterranean. That's extremely important. The Russian and American fleets have repeatedly come into confrontation in the Mediterranean. Every time there's an Arab-Israeli war, the Soviet-American fleets come into confrontation. In fact, back in 1967, we almost went to war over that. McNamara has testified about it. The two fleets came into confrontation, and it's happened over and over. That's the way a nuclear war is most likely to start. Well, okay, they're offering to withdraw the two fleets. Now, you know, for us, the Mediterranean is much less significant than it is for them. I mean, for them, the Mediterranean is kind of like the Caribbean is for us. That's their only, even more, it's their only warm water exit. But they're willing to withdraw their fleet, they say. We won't pursue it. And on and on. So they've made a number of really astounding proposals, which we don't want to accept, the United States does not want to accept. So I think, from their point of view, they're going to try to play down this conflict. Now, what about from the Reagan point of view? I don't think the Reagan administration wants any kind of a settlement. They need the, they would like to have a reduction of number of missiles, for the reason I mentioned, because it's totally insignificant and irrelevant, and our comparative advantage is not in production anyway. You know, in fact, our missiles are now using Japanese components. For, that's, in fact, true. We're increasingly relying on Japan and even South Korea for the most sophisticated parts of our own missiles because this Pentagon system of public subsidy is so inefficient, it's extremely inefficient, that we can't compete with our industrial rivals. So production of missiles is not a big business for us. The American comparative advantage is in new technology. And they've got to keep that going, and we have no other method other than the Pentagon so far. It's very hard to think of another one. So they're going to keep the confrontation going. They need a shield for intervention. They need a way to force the public to subsidize high technology. And therefore, they're going to, they might accept, in fact, they'll welcome reduction in uh, actual level of armaments, but they're always going to keep insisting on continual improvement for these reasons. Uh, that's where we're ahead, and that's the way we keep our industrial system going. So I think, but I think, but nevertheless, the Reagan administration does want to talk. And the reason is, again, they're afraid of their major enemy, the domestic population, both here and in Europe. You've got to shut them up. You don't want too much turmoil in Europe. You don't want too much turmoil here. So the way you do it is continuing to show a willingness, you know, a forthcoming willingness to participate in negotiations and so on and so forth. You want to look at disinformation. Look at the way they handled that Reykjavik summit. It's fantastic, I mean, magnificent, you know. They came out of the Reykjavik sum summit with George Schultz with a long face and everybody, you the long face, so all on television saying, oh, God, it was a catastrophe, a disaster. Then they realized that's not going to play in Peoria. So they switched 180 degrees, and all of a sudden, George Schultz comes on beaming and Reagan comes on beaming. It was a fantastic success, you know. And the whole press switches around, you know, like parrots. Yes, it was a fantastic success. Everybody loves it, you know, three to one support. I mean, you know, it's like trained parrots. Uh, and they've got to keep doing that because, you know, you've got to worry about your primary enemy, the domestic population. You've got to keep them quiet. So to get back to your comment, I don't think that this is going to have a big effect because each side, for quite different reasons, wants to keep the discussions going. I was told only one more question, and it'll have to be from this side since the last one was from that side, so go ahead. Well, in the United States, there's a segment of the... Was what? There's a segment of the industrial portion of the United States that makes a tremendous amount of money off the arms race. 
but uh, in the Soviet Union they don't apparently have that and you know, they don't have a system with a where people get rich off of the arms race I mean is are there so that's one reason to believe they're sincere in offering to uh, stop testing and to uh, dismantle their portion of the arms race are there any other reasons to believe that they're insincere I mean are there ways in which they really may yeah. gain or profit from the yeah. arms well, race? Well your point is very important they don't have exactly the same motives that we do to keep the military system going nevertheless you'll notice that they have also been dedicated to building up their military system way beyond any conceivable need of defense I mean they have actual security problems which we don't you know but nevertheless there are arms build up has been well in advance of any set def reasonable defensive needs. So why do they do it? As you say, it's not, you know, this is a command economy. People just follow orders. So you don't have to get the public to subsidize industry, you know, through devious means. Uh, but it is a society based on, it's a state based on force. You know, it's a state based on force and violence. First of all, the Soviet Union itself is an empire internally. You know, just, you know, the thing that's colored red on the map, that's an empire run by a Russian minority uh, with uh, complex ethnic uh, groupings, which are not small, like 40 million Muslims, and I don't know how many Ukrainians, but plenty of them. Uh, there's a whole pile of uh, uh, people within that internal empire, and basically they're controlled by force. Uh, furthermore, they control their own population by force. I mean, a Leninist state of the sort established in 19... Uh, see, I think one of the big... Uh, one of the... I, I talked about, a, you know, some of the techniques of use of terminology to delude. One of the most extreme such cases is the use of the term socialism to refer to the Soviet Union. I mean, the Leninist coup, the Bolshevik coup in 1917, and that's what it was. It was a coup, not a revolution. There was, there was a popular revolution, but it was taken over by a managerial elite. Uh, who immediately dismantled all the socialist institutions? They dismantled the uh, they dismantled the workers' councils. They dismantled the Soviets, and they placed the state in the hands of a revolutionary vanguard of uh, of managerial intellectuals, rather like the statist intellectuals in the West, I should say, uh, who took power on the backs of a popular revolution, dismantled the popular institutions and turned the country into what they themselves call the labor army. That's what Trotsky was calling it in mid-1918, a labor army which will be subordinated to the needs of the leader who will drive them on to utopia and so on and so forth. That's a dream of the intellectuals way back. You know, it's a dream, it's, it's almost a disease of the intelligentsia uh, to try, to, try to, to look for, to use state power, you know, to, to use state power uh, which you can attain on the basis of popular struggles so that you can then create a properly managed society run by smart intellectuals where everybody does his job and does what he's told and it'll all work fine. Okay, that's Leninism. That's the exact opposite of socialism. I mean, if socialism means anything, it means workers' control of production and then on from there. And that's the first thing they destroyed. So why do we call it socialism? Well, we call, and incidentally, if you're running that kind of society, you need violence. That's why they, that's the answer to your question. That's why they build up their system. First, the internal empire, then because they need violence to run that managerial state, which is just kind of an extreme form of what 
Western so-called liberals want too. You know, it's one of the reasons they shift so easily from being communists to celebrating America and so on and so forth. Uh, and furthermore, they've got Eastern Europe to contend with. As long as we keep Germany in a hostile military alliance, they're certainly going to control Eastern Europe, and they're going to do it by force because there's no other way. So now, a last comment, which is not exactly your question: Why did? Why is this stuff called socialism? Well, you see, here you have one of the rare cases where the two major propaganda systems in the world agree on something, agree on a certain form of deception. And when that happens, it's very hard to extricate yourself from it. Uh, why do they agree? Well, the United States propaganda system wants to call that socialism so as to defame socialism, right? To, de I mean, to, to destroy the idea that there could really be popular democratic control over the basic institutions of the society. That's hated by American elites. So if you can associate it with a Soviet dungeon, great. That's why we call it socialism on this side. What about their propaganda system? Well, you know, they are trying to get the maximal mileage that they can out of the uh, moral force, which is quite real and quite justified, that's associated with the socialist ideals. And in fact, libertarian socialism, in my view, is the true inheritor of classical conservatism and liberalism. Could go into that if you like, but they want to get uh, when you really think through what the classical liberals were saying uh, in a society in which it's not just the state and the church that are powerful institutions that dominate, but the state, the church, and corporations. They didn't think of that. That's something later. Uh, but the same ideals under these new circumstances lead you right on to libertarian socialist ideals, and people understand that. A lot of people understand that out of the United States, out outside the United States. The United States is an intellectually and culturally very backward area where these topics can't be discussed. But in other parts of the world that are less controlled, they can be. Uh, and there's a certain, uh, you know, there's a certain uh, proper uh, kind of moral prestige or aura associated with these libertarian ideals. And the Soviet leadership would like to, you know, gain for themselves whatever they can by association with them, so they call their system socialist, and we call that system socialist in order to defame it by associating socialism with them, so everybody calls it socialist, and that's one of the use most terrific techniques for destroying socialism that exists. Uh, if you want more stuff on this, I have an article that just came out called The Soviet Union Versus Socialism, which was in fact sent to a Marxist journal who wouldn't publish it, though they commissioned it, and it later came out in an anarchist journal, and I go into this uh, somewhere else. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I was told we got to stop. I wanted to thank Paula for doing these signings. She had to leave. She didn't realize this would go on quite so long that he had this much.